Here at HorrorOasis.com, we are advocates of the horror genre and strive to amplify underrepresented voices in the horror community. This space is for indie artists to promote their work. Please enjoy your stay, and hopefully it's not your last. A father's grief, a child's abandonment, a lover's transformation. Peel back the skin and witness the beating, bloody heart of author Eric LaRocca's debut fiction collection, The Strange Thing We Become and Other Dark Tales. Hot off the release of the best-selling novella, Things Have Gotten Worse Since We Last Spoke, LaRocca's new collection features eight chilling tales of the macabre. Praised by iconic voices in horror such as Daniel Krauss, Tim Wagner, and Chad Lutsky, this collection is sure to be one of the most talked about collections released this year. The Strange Thing We Become and Other Dark Tales releases on September 1st, 2021 from Off Limits Press and is available to order wherever books are sold. Looking for your next horror writing podcast fix? The This Is Horror podcast for readers, writers, and creators is the ultimate show for writing advice, tips, and a personal look into the lives of all your favorite authors. This is Horror Podcast. Listen in to long-form conversations with some of the best writers and creatives on the planet. Over 400 episodes with masters of horror such as Joe R. Lansdale, Chuck Palahniuk, Josh Mallerman, Joe Hill, Charlene Harris, Craig Clevenger, Ellen Datlow, Kathy Koja, and many more. The This Is Horror Podcast. Listen in at www.thisishorror.com. That's the This Is Horror Podcast for readers, writers, and creators. Listeners, before we dive into this episode, just want to remind you, Michael David Wilson, friend of the show, he uh, runs This Is Horror. He also has a consultation service for editing and writing. He has worked with people such as Josh Mellerman and David Moody. Uh, he, for more information on that, all you got to do is go to michaeldavidwilson.co.uk slash editing. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Except this week, when Brennan has just decided he's too good for me. That's totally fine. Thanks, Brendan. <laughs> Unfortunately, Brennan couldn't make it today. Uh, he will be back with us probably next episode, if not the one after that. Um, but it'll just be me flying solo tonight, uh, today with uh, John Langan. He is the author of The Fisherman, along with quite a few collections. Hello, John. How are you? I'm fine, Patrick. I'm fine. You're enough for me. Don't worry. Just because because uh-huh. Brennan is lying drunk in a gutter somewhere, that's that's no problem. I don't I don't. He chose booze over me. That's okay. That's that's all right. We're gonna you're pers- here. Yeah, you're here. <laughs> 
we're gonna pretend that that's definitely the reason why and i'm glad someone thinks i'm good enough <laughs> <laughs> let's dive into the baseline question what got you into horror Oh man, you know it's funny because I, I watched uh, I watched your interview with uh, with Peter Straub the other the other week. Oh, um, and so I, I I knew this question was coming. So I've been thinking about this question, <laughs> like what got me into horror, you know? And and I thought, man, I, I you know the the short answer is when I was a freshman in high school, I read Stephen King's Christine uh, in paperback mm. right around Halloween. It would have been because that was when the books used to come out, you know, uh, hardcover. And paperback for King, and um, and it had this absolutely just like magnetizing effect on me. I was just before this, I had by and large wanted to be a comic book artist, uh, mm. writer slash artist, and um, much of my much of my reading before this point had been comic books. But um, I'd been kind of interested in King. There were there was um, there was one girl I went to elementary school with who was a big Stephen King fan, and I was always kind of like, oh, I wonder what's up with Stephen King, you know? And I had uh, I, I'd read Cujo actually the previous summer, uh, and I wasn't. I was just like, eh, okay, you know, it didn't really do it for me. Um, but then I read Christine, and it was like, bang, this is this is it, you know? This is I have got to do this, and I I think. At the, at the time, it was a sort of a combination of things, right? Uh, on the one hand, you know, I kind of, I, I was not one of the popular kids um, in, in high school. So, you know, I read King's um, portrayal of high school, sort of like like almost like intensification of high school, you know? And, and I, I even though I, I looked at it and I was like, wow, well, you know, the kids who were like obnoxious to me, they're not like homicidal psychos, like the kids in, in, in King's book, right? And and I'm certainly not as good and virtuous as as his heroes, but there was like emotionally, it felt really true. It felt like he was really getting at the way that high school felt. Um, and then, you know, the, there was not just like the supernatural and some kind of oblique, you know, is it there? Is it? Did I see a ghost? I mean, this was full on insanity. And for me, I, I think who had um, grown up on on comic books and then also i mean i guess the extent that i did read it was things like conan um because i read the comic books and then i got the robert e howard books mm. um and so i i read i read howard and and um and tolkien and lloyd alexander i always was interested in in fantasy so it was like with christine i got those sort of two things together even and i i kind of think at the end of the book even it's been a while since i've read it or reread it, I should say, when uh, our heroes are, are facing Christine, uh, they're in this big, uh, like, tanker truck, and he talks about it as if he's like a knight, and, and he's, he's like fighting a dragon, you know? So, so yep. like, in so many ways, it, it just plugged in, and, and there was something for me, uh, the, this kind of immediacy about it happening in, like, the, quote-unquote, the real world. Um, as opposed to a kind of fantasy setting where, you know, I would like read Conan and I loved Conan, but I was not Conan by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> you know, I would imagine I was, you know, but I mean, pick up a sword. Oh, my God, it's so heavy, you know, um, whereas this 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 was happening in the real world. So so that was the like the conversion experience for me. I, I just um, I didn't look back uh, after that. Um, it didn't it didn't um, help that. 
uh, I, I guess, or, or hurt that, I should say. I should say. Mm. didn't hurt that, that my high school had no art program. So um, all throughout, uh, I went to Catholic school, so one through eight and then and then nine through 12. So, um, so during elementary school, I had this terrific art teacher who was really, really supportive and really, really wonderful and would put my drawings up on the wall and all this kind of stuff and, and really encouraged me to draw. Uh, when I got to high school, there was no art program. Um, they had mechanical drawing when you were a senior and, and that was it. So there was just no way. For, I mean, I, you know, obviously I could have kept drawing on my own, but, um, yeah, King just, just did to me, uh, what a writer like HP Lovecraft did to like King and Ramsey Campbell and, and that generation, you know, just, I've always been fascinated by that. It doesn't always happen. Not, it doesn't happen to every writer, mm-hmm. but some writers just encounter that writer who just like activates them, you know? And, and, and then I think to myself, I, I think, you know, I sort of look over my life and I'm like, okay, so, so what was it, you know, um, my early, one of my earliest memories, um, is of having eye surgery. Um, when I was, uh, when I was two and a half, I got a teeny little bit of metal in my, my cornea mm. and in adult, I, I, I subsequent many years later, I worked for eye doctors. And so I know that if it happens to you as an adult, it's actually simple. It's in office surgery. You just come in, you put your head in the little chin rest thing. They're like, don't move. They put a little numbing drop in your eye and then they just use a little drill and they just drill it out. And it's very quick, but you can't do that with a two-year-old. So you have to be knocked out and in my case not you know i was knocked out it was an overnight hospital stay i had an eye patch on and not only that but when i woke up my arms were um strapped to boards so i wouldn't tear the eye patch off and um and so i have this memory of being in this enormous dark space in this in this crib you know with with a high like you know like a jail cell right oh you God. know <laughs> and just like crying because they sent my parents uh they sent my parents home. My my younger brother was uh, was a newborn at this point, and um, so my mom was home with him. And I, I uh, so eventually my dad did come back when they were like, "Oh, he's crying for you," you know. So, um, like like is that it? You know what I mean? Like like, but it seems like that seems even though that was really traumatic, it seems like a lot of weight to put on that, you know. But then when I was in the eighth grade, my dad had these, my dad, who was a lifelong smoker, had these two catastrophic heart attacks, one that put him in the hospital, one like a widow maker, basically that put him in the Mm -hmm. hospital. And then another one after that, Mm. and that upended everybody's life. Um, did that have something to do with it? Um, I was raised, you know, went to Catholic school. I was raised in a, in a very, very devout Catholic household where the supernatural was very much part of, of life. And Mm. the, um, you know, at the end of grade school, I guess like seventh and eighth grade, it was the beginnings of the satanic panic. And so we had the deacons, the church deacons coming in and warning us about what was in Twisted Sisters records and all this kind of stuff, which which like in retrospect, you know, when you look now, when you look at a picture of like Black Sabbath or Twisted Sisters, how did we ever like, like, how did anybody think these guys were like the devil's servants, right? You know, but um uh, Neil Sedaka, that was another story. But um, I, I think um, so, so there were a lot of, of there was a lot kind of floating in the air that sort of pushed me, I, I think, in that direction. But it also was just that King's a brilliant writer. And 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 I think that his that kind of engaging prose style that he has, it, it just made me say, man, like it just sort of brought everything together and made me say, man, I, I want to do this. Um, you know, I. I when I was when I was in college um, and in my twenties, I kind of drifted away from. I still read horror, still read King. I kind of drifted away from it. I got really anxious about you know whether it was respectable enough, um, 
which, uh, which, you know, what can you do? Um, <laughs> and then, uh, then when my wife and I got, uh, got together, um, she was, uh, uh, she was actually working on her dissertation on Jack Kerouac, and and she was she wasn't doing on the road. She was doing this lesser known novel called Doctor Sachs, which sort of like is his take on the shadow and uh, uh, all this kind of stuff. And uh, she just said to me, you know, Kerouac thought I talked to her about this stuff, and she was like, Kerouac thought that popular culture could be literature, could be a vessel for literature, you know, and and that was it. That just like opened that 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 sort of reopened that like everything just sort of came together and it was like bang. It it took me a couple years after that. Um actually well yeah I guess it probably took a year after that. Funny to think about this in retrospect, sort of doing it running the numbers, you know, like it, it probably took me about a year after that to get my first story accepted for publication and then another year for that to appear. But but relatively speaking, that was pretty quick. Um, and, and so it was, um, you know, there's a, there's a, a crime writer. A local guy for for uh, uh, where I am in upstate New York named Steve Hamilton and um, he said uh, he said once I went to see him give a reading um, at a local bookstore and he said that that uh, something to the effect of happiness is being able to do something you loved as a child in a way that fulfills you as an adult. And I was like, man, that is like I have to remember that because that is that is exactly true. And and I kind of feel in some ways like like, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really lucky because I, I feel like that's what I get to do. I was just taking in that quote for a minute. Uh, yeah, no, it's is, a good one. It's a good one. I've never heard of that before, but wow. Yeah, yeah. because often we can talk about other things because you covered a, a lot of ground there. But uh, I just kind of think that the whole cliche of being an adult is not having fun. And as, as writers, we're forever living, I guess, uh, a children's adventure, if you will, to some, to some degree. Um uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm just going to say that I, I think you're right. Like, like I think that what I, I feel like I've, <laughs> what I've learned about fun, um, <laughs> but like, because when I was a kid, you know, when my, when I was an angsty teenager, my parents would be like, what do you want with your life anyway? And I'd be like, I just want to be happy. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I think what I what I've come to understand, what I didn't understand at the time uh, when I was a kid was that like happiness or fun is a kind of a byproduct of, of life, of how, uh, of the way you're living your life. So, so that if, if um, by, by writing the, the stuff I want to write in a way that satisfies me and, and, and so on and such and such, like, like that, that produces happiness, satisfaction, that's fun. That, that, so, so that, um, I, I think people who um, who might say I'm, I'm just not happy, you know, like like why am I not happy? You know, I guess one of the questions might be, okay, like if happiness is a byproduct, what isn't giving you that byproduct? What what is it like? Like look at your life and think to yourself, what is it about my life that isn't isn't you know producing that that effect? Um, and you know, if um, I, I guess I, I when I think about writing, I'm, I'm always kind of surprised by people who are like, I hate writing. Writing isn't fun. Writing is the worst thing ever. Uh -huh. um, I, I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, but, but I, I do feel like, man, if it's that bad, don't do it. You know, like there's, there's no point to suffering that no. much, you know, like, like, um, 
Um, I, and I think there's a difference between like when you're really wrestling with something and you're really trying hard to get it down and that sort of, that can be really tough. Sure. But the, the end effect of that, I feel should be a certain kind of happiness or, or, you know, and if, if that isn't the case, then, um, yeah, I, I, I would say, man, then, then don't do it. Life is really just too short to, to be, to be miserable, to make yourself miserable in that way. It's okay not to write if you don't want to write, you know, yeah. like, 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 um, it, it's okay not to, you know, I used to know people when I was, um, uh, pursuing the PhD I never completed. I used to know people who were in the the program kind of because they could. They didn't necessarily want, like, like, they didn't necessarily love literature. They didn't necessarily love talking about it, but it was kind of like they could do it. So they were like, well, I can do it. I, I guess I should. And I was like, <laughs> no, you know, I, I mean, like, like, it's not as if, uh, I mean, it's not like like being a doctor, like like you know, a physician, where well, okay, you know, it's it's tough, but I'm going to make some serious money. I guess you know if that's what you want. But um, yeah, I'm sorry, this is a tangent, but this is the key to happiness, people. If only Brennan were here, he would have learned this. I don't think he cares, and he specifically told me something that's uh, like completely. Wow, I can't think of words are hard right now. <laughs> Contradictory. <laughs> that's, the, that's the word. He said, I ho uh, hope he comes back for an episode with me. So I said, well, I know John will for me, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure. We're, we're going to, you know, that the jury is out on that one, man. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. You know, he could show up for Peter Stroud, but he can't show up for John Lang. And I see how it is. That's okay. That's, yeah. I don't know what his problem is, man. You're an excellent writer, too. Speaking of which, um, your interview with Straub yourself was pretty damn cool. Like, he, for me, I mean, like, I get to talk to great writers that agree to come on, like you, and uh, there's a lot of other amazing talent out there, but Straub's just, like, he he's just so unique because of his longevity, because of his career with his uh, writing with King and um, I, it's weird to me how my generation doesn't seem to adore and love him as much as I think he should be with other guys too. It applies to like outside of our, our circles, uh, Lansdale or um, Ronald Kelly or a bunch of other writers of that time, uh, maybe even John Skip for people that aren't in the writing circles. Right. Right. Well, I think I think what part of what's fascinating, um, almost like historically, if you will, about or, or from the literary historical standpoint, I guess, about Straub is that, you know, he's there at the at the Big Bang, as it were, you know, I mean, yeah, were there hor there absolutely have been horror novels all the way back to Frankenstein. Um, but but Straub is there when when the publishing world starts to recognize, oh, hey, <laughs> we can make a lot of money off this because right. of. Uh, the Omen and, um, but, but particularly the Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby and um, the other. Um, he's, he's the, the sort of part of that early wave of writers, uh, along with King, um, who really starts to do something with, with that. And, and I think, I think it's also that, that in, in Straub's case, as, as with King, it's that like, you know, Straub starts off and you got like Julia and if you could see me now. Um, and and those are those are good novels, but they're very contained novels. They're very and and then all of a sudden he just he, he writes ghost story. He just like yeah. and, and like he just like opens and then he writes Shadowland and and he just he keeps 
Um, and, and in the same way that King is writing Salem's Lot and The Shining and The Stand, like these guys are just, they're, they're almost like inventing the horror novel. They're just like, they're like, well, suppose you wrote one this way. Well, I, I don't know, Steve, suppose I wrote one that way, you know? And, and so like, we're still, I feel like in some ways we're still catching up to them, you know, like, like they did, like, like Stephen King is like, um, it's like Eudora Welty said of Faulkner that Faulkner was like the mountain and she was just like, you know, in the shadow of this mountain. And I think that's how we all sort of feel about Stephen King. Like he's like the yeah, mountain. Sure. You know, there he is. But but because he's he's such a presence, I think sometimes it's it's easier to forget or 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 like you just take him for granted and you don't realize that um He's just remained kind of restless as a writer. He's 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 like, oh, I'm going to do a crime thriller now. Okay, Billy Summers, you know, and and or I'm going to write revival. I'm going to write this this horror novel that is just utterly bleak. That that is that is. You want cosmic horror? I'll give you cosmic horror. And and so you know, he's just and and Straub. Um, I, I know that Peter's had a lot of health troubles over the years, so I think that slowed him in in part. But Straub has been kind of similar, and in, in in that he's. Um, you know, he's every now and again he just kind of like like reinvents himself as a writer. Sometimes it's not really is novel by novel, I guess he really does. But you know, he goes through like the supernatural horror phase. Um, it's almost in three book increments. I sometimes think it doesn't quite work out that way. But you know, you had Ghost Story, Shadowland, and Floating Dragon, and and those are him really engaging some some horror traditions really intensely. Um, and then you've got Coco Mystery and. Mm. Um, uh, for that trilogy <laughs> yeah and and you've got right and and that's like i mean um it, it's crime it's mystery it's thriller it's horror you know it's gothic um and then um you know then he goes in pairs because then you've got mr x and and the hellfire club and then you've got lost boy lost girl and in the night room um and he just he's he's like well you know i mean like mr x you know that late in his career he's like i think it's time i wrote a lovecraft novel and so he <laughs> writes this insane lovecraft novel you know or or, or uh, lost boy lost girl he's like yeah i'm gonna write another ghost story but it's only gonna be whatever it is 200 pages long um I think he described it as like pulling the novel. He had this idea for a novel and he was like, what if I pulled it inside out? So, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, I don't know, you know, it, it, he reminds me, they both remind me of, of these rock and roll stars who just keep going Bob Dylan or something. And I know not everybody likes Dylan, but I love him. And I'm like, the guy's 80 years old and he just keeps going. And he just, and, and every now and again, everybody's like, Oh my God, Dylan put out a great new album. He just completely reinvented himself. And, and that kind of, you know, restlessness, um, um, longevity. That's something I really uh, admire and 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 aspire to as as well. You know, the um, Peter's always reading new writers. He's always aware of of new writers, um, and he's been very generous uh, yeah. with me, with 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 uh, with Laird Barron. You know, with with Gemma Files, with with a number of us. He's he's just. Um, um, every now and again, you know, people will say, oh, who should I be reading? You know, and he'll mention one or all of us. And, and that's, that, that, that never gets old. <laughs> I, I bet, man. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I asked him specifically a question about blurbs and at least right now he's not doing them, but to be in the, to, to be in that pool, man, where he mentions you and some of your friends, like, I'll speak for you, and if I'm wrong, totally call me out on it. But for me, guys like Straub is is like 
Richard Matheson level or Ray Brad. He is. He's like at that tier. He's like Ray Bradbury or Robert Block, which, okay, that would be the best example. I think he, to people like us, is our Robert Block. Like he's very friendly, nice person. The stuff he writes is so good. It's next level stuff. And, and, and he helps the next generation. Yeah, he's remained, I think, and, and part of this, I, I have to be, you know, I, I talked to him once about, um, he was talking about uh, the the going to, I think it was a World Fantasy Convention after he and King had written The Talisman, and um, King was there as well, and he hmm. said, he, he said, uh, he said, I couldn't move. He said, I'm just surrounded by all these people. And he, he said, you know, like, at first you're kind of like, yeah, rock star life, but <laughs> then it, it's a little freaky. And and he was like, I was actually kind of relieved when that was when that was kind of over, you know. Like, and I, so I I think in in fairness to someone like King, King can't go anywhere because he's he's just um, if he goes to a convention or whatever, all he's going to do, I mean, he's going to be mobbed. And I I can uh, imagine that 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 could be really. You're just like, yeah, I don't need this anymore. This is not, you know. Um, whereas Peter um, has has you know he's 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 had tons of bestsellers. Um, but he's never had that kind of rock star thing that, that that King has, and so so he can be accessible in a way that that I, I think King. It's probably the same thing with Neil Gaiman. I, I would imagine at this point in in Neil's life, you know, that that he's just not gonna um, he's not gonna go to a lot of conventions. I imagine because um, it's really difficult. It, 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 I imagine it's increasingly difficult for him just to to hang out with a friend at the bar. Yeah. Uh, because there's a line of people who are like, can I get a selfie with you? And, you know, will you sign me? So can you imagine that? Like, I mean, for I, I don't know what your dream is, but for me, it's always been uh, to be a stay at home dad and full time writer. Now, my, my little guy is, too. So, I mean, I'm not holding my breath on that happening ever, but definitely not when he's still of that age or I'd be a stay at home dad. But I wouldn't. I would never want that kind of notoriety. Like guys like him, people of that stature, you said it, they can't go anywhere. Like yeah. imagine, imagine that you're just out with your wife and your boy. Like I saw pictures uh, a week ago, I think it was where you're dropping off your boy at college. Oh yeah. 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 That's nice. That's awesome. I'm sure you guys went out for, you know, for a meal and stuff, but imagine you're doing that. And the whole time you got people wanting to be with you and, and then they probably don't care about like your wife and son, and and that would probably even make it more irritating. I I would hate that. I wouldn't want to go out. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um, I don't know. You know, like like um, I, I yeah, I, I guess I can't imagine it. You know, I, I I can't imagine that that level of of um a fame. I guess you know, like like maybe which is different from success. I I guess because um. Straub is obviously successful. Robert Block was successful, but I, yeah. I don't think I don't think uh, Block ever had that problem of getting mobbed in that in in that same kind of way. So, I, I think that the the fame thing, as opposed to just success and even considerable success, I think the fame thing is is weird. Um, and yeah. I I think um, um, it it. Um, it would. It, it it does. When you think, if you think about it too long, you know, you, you think, man, that that would be difficult to to live with. I uh, I think, um, especially in an internet culture and in a, in a kind of everybody's got a, a camera with them and and 
uh, yeah, that it would be very easy for you to feel that you had no privacy and no no life. I, I think another one that comes to mind that is a how do I word this? Well, writers usually are in front of their own creation with the general public, but King is gaming probably is um, another one is George R. R. Martin and. He's been writing since, uh, as far as I know, the 70s with a, yep. the, the magazine Analog. And um, he's got some great horror out there, too, and sci-fi. But, you know, what the key is that I've noticed, and it's nothing revolutionary, but it's when you get that one or two big movie hits. And, and to me, HBO TV series is just, not, uh, just as big or maybe more so big as the film was back 20 30 years ago and, and once that happens it's like you can't turn back like george R. R. martin he i've seen it man like i follow him on social media he every single day it seems like has a bunch of assholes asking him about uh was it book six in the yeah. uh, game of thrones it's it's like you <laughs> can it's you can't do anything i mean that alone would yeah. be the worst it's so, it's it's a it's a real um it's, it is kind of fascinating because George was, I, I met him many years ago um, and he was already, I think it was, I'm trying to think about this. If, if, um, if the HBO show had just started, um, he was a guest of honor at Boscone where I was. And I, oh. I um, it had led to some of his earlier novels. He has this novel called Armageddon Rag, which is a horror novel about a, a rock band uh, called the Nazgul, as I recall. And um and I wanted him to sign a copy of it for my brother-in-law and, um, and a nice guy, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. But at, at that point he could go out in public, you know, he was, he was, he was at conventions. So, but, but, you know, it was, it was okay. But um, yeah, what, and it, you know, at that point, the, 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 uh, there were three or four of the, of the uh, Song of Ice and Fire novels were out. So, so, you know, he was, and I think, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know his accountant, but my impression is he was pretty successful at that point. But when you go to, to any kind of film media, you know, whether it's an HBO series, Netflix series, or, or, or a movie, your life really does, does change when, when, um, when it's successful, I guess. I, I, I mean, I, I think there are people who have movies made of their work. The movie doesn't do so well or, or whatever, you know. Um, but I, I think if, if you have the kind of success he had with, with Game of Thrones where everybody's talking about it, everybody is um, – it drives your book sales up. Um, um, you know, yeah, your your life changes. Uh, money money changes everything, as Cindy Lauper sang. Absolutely, uh, and you know, now that we're talking about this, it just idea popped in my head. I'm curious if you have any comments on it. Uh, makes me wonder what J.R. Tolkien would have thought about his uh, his, his trilogy, the original, tri not the Hobbits trilogy, the uh, original trilogy in the early aughts being turned into what it is. Because from what I read. Uh, I dove pretty deep into that trilogy the first time I read that. Uh, Similarillion, a bunch of the uh, other books that cover stuff outside of the Fellowship, uh, and then of course the Fellowship of the Rings, and um, they were massive. They were massively successful when they first came out as books. It seems like uh, was it 50 years or so later when the movies came out, they were just as successful, if not more. Yeah. Um, I, w I would have been real curious to see what his thoughts were on that to have like I said 50 years later your book is just like it blows up throughout the world and 
if it wasn't for that, Game of Thrones, I would put money on it. The Game of Thrones probably wouldn't have been turned into a series. Yeah, I, I think I think that the success of the of the Jackson movies, uh, the the Lord of the Rings trilogy, definitely fueled the the um, the the Game of Thrones show. I, I mean, it was it was it was so successful um, financially and critically and and whatever um, that yeah, it, it makes absolute sense to me that that they you know HBO would be like okay you know well, how can we fund what do you got <laughs> what's going to happen and and. Um, um, and they were, they were looking for, uh, I, I think, um, a, a similar epic kind of story. You know, I, I would love to see them adapt, uh, say, Fritz Leiber's Fafford and the Grey Mouser stories, but but most of those don't have that same kind of epic sweep. They, they're they episodic, you know, they're story after story. Um, whereas Game of Thrones, you know, the, the fate of the world's at stake, dragons, all this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I think that they were they were looking for the feel that, that Tolkien um, gives you. I don't know, you know, I mean, he sold the rights, uh, the movie rights, I, I think, towards the end of his life. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, I, I want to say in the late 60s, um, when I was a kid, I was a, you know, when I was a kid, it was the Ralph Bakshi um, Fellowship of the Ring that came out uh, around the same time that Rankin Bass's Hobbit and Return of the King came out. So you had like all of a sudden Tolkien was 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 on screen that way mm-hmm. in two very different animated styles. Right. And um, and so, yeah, so I, I struggled through the books and and read the Silmarillion, you know, tried to read the Silmarillion when I was like in sixth <laughs> or seventh grade. And I was like, oh my I God. don't know. There's a dragon. That's how I remember. The guy stabs him. You know, that was, um, there were werewolves. People might be naked at some point. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, but I was, he, he, and he still remains to me this really fascinating figure because he, he's so, um, he shapes the way that we think about fantasy, that we think about like sort of secondary world fantasy, you know, and, and, um, um, what was it? There was there was some kind of meme or something that went around where somebody's you know uh, talking to Tolkien and you know what do I need to do to create a fantasy world? Do I need to come up with you know plot and characters and all this sort of stuff? And he's like, no, you need to invent your own language first. Yeah. You know, it's, it's base it on Finnish. Um, and um, so so yeah, that that he is is this this really. To, to me, this really fascinating figure, especially in the 20th century, where there are there are a lot of great fantasists, but but so much before Tolkien, I feel like, uh, you know, someone like Lovecraft or is not mainstream, um, and and so many fantasists that we read now, uh, who who've been sort of brought into the mainstream in terms of publication and such, they're publishing in these magazines that that the fans know, that fandom knows about, but fandom itself is not doesn't have center stage in the way that it does now. So, you know, Tolkien just, um, uh, he's, a, he's aware of a lot of stuff, um, but, it, you know, he, he creates this thing that is just like so much its own thing. And he's also in this group with Lewis and Charles Williams and I right. can't remember who else. And, and so there, there's all kinds of things that, that I think are really, really fascinating about him. And, um, you know, at one point, I, I mean, he... He writes in a letter, I think it is, to somebody that like Middle Earth is like like so big that there's no way that he can ever write all the stories in in Middle Earth, and that that he he sort of floats the idea that he might actually do something like what Lovecraft did and sort of make it like sort of an open world. You can come in and you can write, you know, and 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 expand stuff. And I, you know, he never. I don't know why he didn't pursue that. Uh, maybe it was just a passing thought, and he had other concerns, but. 
um, it's it's an amazingly kind of like generous kind of, of view, you know, like like and yeah. I mean, in, I never thought about this before, but in a way, you know, in the beginning of the Silmarillion, when he has the creation story and he has, uh, I think it's Iluvatar, the sort of the the great god who like like is sort of creating things but then he has like the sort of angels or demigods or whatever you want to call them that he creates and like he wants them to be part of his creation so he's like you know i want to have trees you know but he but he sort of is like you design a tree for me you know kind of what i want but you do your own thing with it you know and 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 i kind of think that like like that's how i think of what maybe tolkien and this is a lot of speculation on my part right but that's what i think he was thinking about um i've got these ideas one you see what you can come up with you know and you you do your thing and so it'll it'll look kind of like what i want but it'll also be your own thing and that'll be super cool too um it's it's why i think um for all his you know acknowledged faults um it's kind of remarkable to me all their faults really that that lovecraft and howard and clark ashton smith you know like like played in each other's sandboxes and encouraged each other to play in each other's sandboxes and mm. opened it up to people like block and liber and and so on um it, it's 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 a remarkable act of, of creative generosity to do that um whereas i think tolkien's you know his family the estate is like no 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 that's our ip <laughs> nobody's you are not touching <laughs> that you know that that's unless you're amazon and you're coming to us with a billion dollars there there you are not touching our our stuff right um and um and yeah and unfortunately i i mean i get it we all need money but it it does seem that that the the drive for profit um um does it constrains things um, in in all kinds of in all kinds of ways. I I know that Peter Jackson wanted to make money. I, I mean that's not unreasonable, you know. But in the at least in the original trilogy, I, I'm really was not fond of the Hobbit trilogy. But but in the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, there is this real feeling of love for the, the for what he's doing. This this real feeling that this is uh, you know as it were to invoke a cliche that the labor of love and and it comes across in. Um, in, in the films, you know, and I think it's part of the reason that, like, people talk about, ah, oh, it's the holidays, we're going to have our, our Lord of the Rings watch party, you know, we're going to, we're just going to do the whole, either in one day or over a couple of nights, we're going to do the extended editions, of course, and, and we're just going to watch all of them, because uh, there's... I think this real feel, feeling of fellowship in the movie, in among all the actors, among all the characters, and 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 we respond to that in a in a way. There's something really authentic about those films. I uh, I grew up as a kid in love with Star Wars. My dad mm -hmm. brought when they did a reissue in theaters. Uh, it's like ninety seven, I want to say. Yeah, yeah, say. right. Be, right before Phantom Menace, they they tried to remind everybody. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the very first one in theaters I saw it was arguably the fan favorite, uh, Empire Strikes Back, and I was just like, "This is what I want to do for my life." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but then I saw, and I still love Star Wars, but then I saw in theaters, I think it was two thousand or so, the trailer for. Come in this winter, Fellowship of the Rings, and I mean that was it. Game over, man. And the trilogy for the films to me is very true. It, it's very respectful to the books. And the one thing I'll never understand—I didn't look up why—but the one complaint I got is, "Where's Tom Bombadil in the in the movie?" Oh, right, right. right. <laughs> He's such a big role in the book in the Fellowship of the Rings.
Well, I think that, you know, the, the, um, I always felt with, 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 for Tolkien, um, the, how would I put this? Okay. So there's some writers, you read their books and, and you feel like, and it doesn't matter whether it's, whether it's fantasy, realism, whatever, but you feel like, man, they live in this world. Like, like if you were to say to them, Hey, um, suppose, you know, you, you talk about the action that happens on this street. Suppose I go two streets over. Um, you know, you don't mention that, but like they would tell you, oh, two streets over. Well, that's where this guy lives. Like, you know, like they, they just, and that's how, for, for me, that's how Middle Earth feels that Tolkien lived in that place. And so, so the, there, there's so much in the, but there's a world inside those, inside just the trilogy, um, let alone, uh, let alone the Silmarillion. He, he knows all. So, so Tom Bombadil is part of that. Tom Bombadil is just this thing, you know, like, like, um, I mean, at one point I went down a rabbit hole of, of like who or what is Tom Bombadil and, and nobody knows. And Tolkien himself was like, I'm not sure. I'm he's not sure. He's the oldest creature. That's all we know. Yeah. Is he, so, so if he's, is, is he God or a God or, or is he, is he some kind of, you know, what, what is he, you know, nature, incarnation of nature, he all this kind of like stuff. like a Greek God to me, man. Like just, he's jolly and he knows he could fuck up your day, but he's not gonna. Yeah, and and the ring has no the ring has no power over him. He's right. just he's and, and he's just like sort of outside the system, you know, like 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 so those are like like the pursuit of power, whatever. He's he's not bothered by it, whatever, you know. He he's just he's he's, um, and maybe he's just simply like you know in harmony with the world or something like that in a way that nobody else is. Maybe maybe it is as simple as that. That like that's his power is is just that he. Um, is is just that he's achieved uh, because of his his long life. He's just achieved a, a kind of balance or, or integration with the world around him that that most of us don't have because we're alive. <laughs> even even the elves are subject to certain passions and that that throw them out of the that throw them out of the world, um, uh, or or into a lack of harmony with the, with the world. But but no, not not Tom Bombadil, and maybe that's you know. But he's just another thing. He's just another creature, you know. That's that's in this giant world, and there were all these things. What happened to the other wizards? And what happened to Radagast yeah. the Brown? And all <laughs> yeah. this kind of stuff, you know. It, it's, and I think you know he. Um, it, it's funny, you know, because when one of the things I loved about some of King's stuff and and Clive Barker's stuff was that they were both very good at like just dropping names and dropping hints of things that were um, like they just indicated this sort of a similar thing that there was just this big world out there, um, this this big imaginative universe out there. And and I think for King in part, it was the Dark Tower. Like, I think that was in his mind to a certain extent. And he would, you know, all things serve the beam. And he'd be like, what does that mean? Um, but but then there were also things that, that he would just... Um, you know, Barker with the Cenobites say, you know, the order of the gash and all this kind of stuff. It was like, what Such is that? What is, too. what does that mean? You know, like, yeah. yeah. And, and I, I loved those. Um, I, I still love, love, love books that do that, 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 that don't wrap everything up in a neat bow, but, but that are, are like, well, we're telling our story and our story's happening here and we're moving along here. But in the meantime, you know, we may bump into all kinds of other things from all over the rest of the, uh, of, of a big and strange world. Imagine that you're not from this world to play off of that. And we're talking about uh, where, okay, so let's focus on one pilot 
in the Air, American Air Force during World War II and you just follow them, you're not going to get the whole backstory. They're not going to, you know, you're not going to know what happened with World War One if you're just focused on this one character or a band of characters to kind of go along with the whole Battle of the Ring and stuff. Like, you're, you're right. The, the world's bigger. And I love that, too, because it makes me want to know more. But sometimes, you know, that's life. You're not going to always know more. Um, I did want to get kind of one, uh, see what you thought about this, where I read how the Lord of the Rings is responsible for the arc, uh, the architecture of trilogies, where Tolkien wanted to do one massive volume. But yeah. Uh, but, I think back then, and even today, uh, unless you're of the stature of him where he is now, that's expensive to print a book. What was yeah. it like 1,100 pages? But they the the publisher wanted to break it up for that reason. Um, I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on on the trilogy and, and and whatnot because that I mean, no matter what the genre is, the trilogy you hear a trilogy. And, I mean, it excites me. It's like all right, there's three stories worth of connected to this world uh, i i want yeah. to know yeah no and i think anytime you can arrange things in a trilogy uh um so i, I remember when i was when i was reviewing i wrote um i reviewed paul tremblay's uh cabin at the end of the world and i said you know it forms a kind of thematic trilogy with uh his previous two books head full of ghosts and disappearance of devil's rock mm. and um and he really liked that, and and I would not be surprised if his publicist liked that because you know trilogy things go together, you know, and and therefore you know no, it's thematic, you know, they're different characters, but but it's really a trilogy, you know. Right. And, and I think that um, yeah, I mean, if you read, I mean, in, in you know the the Tolkien books, it's actually six books. It's each each um, oh you're uh, right each each book of the of the trilogy is two books. Right. So. What's interesting to me is is that you know that um, so it's it, it's following and I've never mapped this out too closely, but it's following the structure of an epic poem. That epic poems tend to be either twelve books or twenty four books, um, and so Tolkien isn't going to write twelve or twenty four. He's writing six, you know. So it's a sort of uh, it's 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 so so uh, there's an epic kind of plan to it, and um, so putting it in in one volume. Um, I remember right before the Jackson movies came out, they they did release a one volume edition of the of the Lord of the Rings. I kind of wish I'd picked it up now, but um, yeah. you know, just the uh, it. Uh, um, and I think they had edited it, like like gone through to look for typos and that and that sort of stuff. But, but you know the the um, yeah trilogies. It's weird, right? Because it it just kind of generates then its own kind of um, same with films. Um, you know, most of the Marvel movies now are trilogies. They though oh, the Iron Man trilogy or or. Um, it looked like Thor was going to be a trilogy, but the, yeah. the third one was so different that it, it's, but I wonder, you know, like I, I do, I think to myself, so is Taika Waititi going to do a Thor trilogy in essence, Ragnarok, Love and Thunder, and there'll be one more to make that its own little trilogy. People like trilogies. They, they like, um, I think part of it is, is they like the expansive storytelling. I think they they like the the chance to spend a lot of time in a particular place with particular characters, um, and it's um, you break. But if, but if it's broken up into three parts, you can sort of digest it a little bit a little bit easier. Yeah, man, that's I'm glad I asked that. That's a lot to think about. Um, 
I, you know what? I don't have anything to follow up with that besides that's brilliant. <laughs> I think that's brilliant. And there's one more thing I want to talk about with Lord of the Rings and we can move on to uh, let's go with your collection. Sure, sure. I just think that it's really neat. I didn't notice until the Silmarillion that Sauron's not the toughest bastard in that whole universe. That oh no, he's he's <laughs> he's just like he's he's um, man. I'm trying to remember. Morgoth is the is the big bad guy. I yeah. think like the yeah. devil basically. He's like the sort of I think anyway. He's the sort of Satan figure, and um, yes, yeah, Sauron is is just like a lieutenant. He's yep. just he's just like a little a little guy, um, and well, you know, and and it's it's. There is something that's really interesting. Um, the you know that that's so much of the of the beginning of the Silmarillion um, is is just epic. I, I mean, it's gods and 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 godlike beings just kind of fighting amongst themselves. And and um, the the you know uh, what is it the I can't I can never remember the name of the country that's submerged. The the uh, there's so many. Yeah, it, it's the country where it's essentially. Um, Wow, I can't Atlantis. Uh, yeah, yeah, it becomes it becomes a, Numenor it's a, it's a, or new, yeah, something like that with the N is what I'm thinking, right? God, I'm sorry, Tolkien, um, but it's um, so so. There's just these these. So it's funny because obviously the events of the Lord of the Rings are, are epic, right? But yeah. but but then you know the Silmarillion describes things that that put that to shame. You know, yeah. it's it's yeah. oh, there were a whole bunch of people fighting Balrogs, and this one woman kills a Balrog. You know, and I think it's Luthien who kills the Balrog. Um, oh, and there's and, like this uh, mighty Balrog that sounds like it puts the one in the Fellowship to shame. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it's it's just you know so so there were. Um, um yeah it is like it's as if it's as if within the world of the lord of the rings they have their myths too or their mythology too their their legendary stories of these crazy things that 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 happened in the same way that we have these stories uh you know of, of people who did these incredible things in in our past right okay i just googled it i cheated it is i don't know if i'm pronouncing this correct but it's and N U M E N O R. So I would say Numenor, but yeah, Numen. I would too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In in Return of the King, uh, there is a lot of those people. Some of them turn bad, and uh, one of them is the uh, quote unquote the mouth of Sauron. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd forgotten his own name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's like if you don't read the Silmarillion, I don't think you're gonna pick up on that. But kind of going back to your point about how they'll mention this or that but not dive into it that that's a good example i would think yeah and i also think what what winds up i mean there are two things that wind up happening right um and and so one is just that yeah it suggests this other world uh, or a, a wider world but then there's also the possibility too that you're going to link it up to something um you know so so that in tolkien in the case of tolkien say but this applies to lovecraft it applies to laird baron um you uh it applies to king um uh, even some of Straub's stuff. Straub hasn't done it quite as much as as extensively as King has, but Ramsey Campbell's done it a little bit as as well. But you know, you 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 look at the you, you read a number of the different books. You read The Hobbit. You read The Lord of the Rings. You read The Silmarillion, and you're like, oh man, these all connect. There's all kinds of echoes. There's and it's not just that 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 um, Frodo is Bilbo's nephew, but but that there were other connections beyond that. And obviously, in The Silmarillion, then. I mean, the Silmarillion just treats the Lord of the Lord of the Rings. I can't remember in like ten pages or something. So, oh yeah, there was yeah. the, the War yeah. of the Ring. By that happened too. Don't worry <laughs> about that. You know, I love how 
Tolkien and, and Lewis, and I don't forget. You said one more, but I forget who Charles, was. Charles Williams. Yeah, he was the other big. He was he was the really weird writer of the of the bunch. I'm a big fan of uh, Lewis too. I, I love the, uh, the the Chronicles of Narnia. I've read, I think it's all six books. I got a volume from um, the 70s, and I, I just man, it makes me feel. I love books like that in The Hobbit. It makes me feel like a little kid and. I can appreciate everything in it, but at the same time, I'm just like, nothing's important right now. This is fun. <laughs> but yeah, well, it's, it's, I think what it is, is that they, um, they, the, the work has integrity. They took the work they were doing seriously. Um, I, I remember, um, it's funny, you know, cause I remember reading, um, an, an article that Straub wrote about his first meeting with King and uh, Stroud was living in London uh, with his family and King's family came over to, to they were they were going to stay thinking about moving to London for a little while. And uh, so anyway, uh, King and Straub uh, meet up, the families meet up and they're hanging out. And, and Straub described King, he said there was like this, this, this sense of like absolute integrity about the guy and what the guy was doing. And that, for whatever reason, that really like stuck in my mind. And, and um, you know, when the, 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 uh, when I when I got to know um, uh, Laird, that was very much the way that that Laird continues to be was and continues to be his absolute integrity about what he's doing. He's utterly serious about it. He may not take himself too seriously, but but he takes what he's doing with the utmost seriousness. And um, and and I think that um, no matter what it is you're you know like, like maybe that's maybe that's a, uh, something that sets apart the really great writers is that they just the sense of absolute integrity or, or great artists in general you know that they just they're, they're not that they're just they're totally committed to what they're doing however lunatic it may be it's <laughs> it's, it's what they're doing they yeah I've, you know what man i've noticed that they handle themselves not not seriously but their artwork like that that's just the switch, and that shit's taken seriously. You know, we I don't know if you looked into uh, any other episode, but we had Laird on um, seven months ago, and for it was the beginning of season two. And um, what a what a kind guy! Like he yeah. he he displays that anytime you listen to him or whatever. But I think we weren't recording at that point. It was after we recorded actually, and he just asked if we were okay uh because uh, it was just during the pandemic and he said i just generally want to know if you two are okay it came out of left field but it's like you don't you really don't get that kind of kindness as friendly as people are online with each other i i don't feel like you get that type of genuine kindness from the majority of people in life yeah no laird is laird feels things very very intensely um and um um and and he is if if he's if he's giving you his time to to talk to you then then he wants to engage with you he wants to you know and and he wants to know what's what's going on in your life and and um so yeah it's it's which is kind of weird because most people are just like yeah yeah okay 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 yeah great nice to meet you too you know but but uh, yeah, no, he's he's uh, he's the real deal. So I'm curious with him, with uh, Paul Tremblay, especially. Um, I'm, I might be putting words in your and or Paul's mouth, um, but 
you guys are pretty much best friends. And then you mentioned Victor Lavelle. I didn't know that you guys are friends too. Yeah. Uh, so for Victor, how, how did you, how'd you meet him? Is it just that you guys are both writers, but doing it for a while. And then kind of same question for Laird and specifically with Paul, because you two have formed like a brotherhood. I'll, I'll just go on a limb and say like a brotherhood. You two are. Yeah. Yeah. No, all those guys and, and Stephen Graham Jones um, and, um, and to a certain extent, Livia Llewellyn, uh, Michael Cisco. Um, you know, we all just, part of it was, um, in, in Laird's case, Laird is, I have like sort of the oldest relationship with Laird, and, and it was that we were published, um, I, I was published, we were both published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in 2001. I was published in the August issue, he was published in the September issue. And um, after he was published, the editor at the time, Gordon Van Gelder, sent me an email, and, and he was like, you know, I just published this story called Shiva Open Your Eye in the in the september issue i don't know if you've read it yet but uh, you should i'd be curious to know what you think of it and you know it's, it was really weird and trippy and i was like wow this is kind of crazy but i think so it it it, it opened my eye to laird i, I like paid attention and, and i don't know if i communicated with him um until the next story until the the uh i think it was the imago sequence that was next and and then I sent him this. And I sent him this like very formal, dear Mister Baron. I am you know, um, and he wrote back, dear Mister Lang. You know, we were very sort of formal and respectful and this sort of stuff. But um, our, and, and so you know, um, we, we just our correspondence just developed, and it was very yeah. Initially, it was very genteel and very mannered, and and um, and I I just I did I respected what he was doing so much it was very different from what i was doing but i think for both of us there was the sense um that we were coming out of this this kind of like horror tradition and although like laird's kind of constellation of influences included people like martin cruz smith and cormac mccarthy and mine included people like dickens and henry james like we had enough things in common lovecraft and king and that sort of stuff and straub that um we kind of recognized oh yeah we're kind of on the same page about things and um and yeah we roomed together one reader con um probably like 2005 i think it was and then that we, we always got along that was, which is we come from completely different backgrounds but we just were in sync and and it was around 2005 2006 paul and i were on a panel together uh at ReaderCon, and um uh we just kind of got along and 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 he had a copy of his his first collection of stories and hardcover and i um i bought it off him he wouldn't give me a discount a lousy bastard and um um and I and took his email address and he took my email address. So then he emailed me and he was like, um, hey, what'd you think of my stories? You know, and I was like, they're terrible. And um, he was like, I respect your honesty. But we just we got along. You know, we, we just and and we we um, and then he he was the one I think maybe I'm trying to remember if he told me about uh, Stephen. Stephen had published a story called Raphael in Cemetery Dance, which is this utterly insane story. Uh, I've never because, read that one. It starts off like a Stephen King story about, you know, like like high school kids and blah, blah, blah. And you at least I thought it was going to go in this one like 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 there's this possible supernatural thing. But the way it's going, you kind of think, oh, it's it's all going to be deflated. Uh, and it isn't. It just goes crazy. And I was like, what is this guy doing? And um, I think Paul reached out to him first and, and then. um yeah, we, we just wound up at a number of different conventions together 
and now increasingly, you know, Zoom calls and, and such. Um, and Victor was um, Victor was through um, through the Shirley Jackson Awards, I guess, because he came. Um, I'm trying to think. I met him because his novel uh, Big Machine, which is a fantastic novel, was nominated and it won. It was, and so he was there. And we met. We sort of talked a little bit, and and then um, he came the next year to to um, uh, to do an introduction for the Jackson Awards. And and just over time, you know, we just kind of got to know each other, and um, and it was that thing where you just kind of hang out in restaurants, bars, whatever, and you just sort of chat about your different experiences and and such. And and um, and I, I guess and same thing with Livia. Uh, Livia, I actually have have known. Uh, probably as long as as Laird, maybe, oh, um, wow. or 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 maybe a little bit less. But but I was, I I um, we met at the KGB readings down in the city. Going, I, I was like going to see other people, and and so she was there. And we, everybody goes to dinner afterwards. So we sort of hung out and just cracked each other up. And I was like, this person is awesome. And then I read <laughs> her stories, and I was like, yes. Um, so yeah, and Cisco, same thing. Cisco just was at the, the KGB readings and was also at ReaderCon a lot. And in, with Cisco, I wound up. Um, uh, he doesn't drive, uh, so he he would take the bus. I think it was out to uh, to ReaderCon, and then I would give him a drive back to the train station uh, mm-hmm. in in Beacon, not that far from my house. Um, and so we would just chat, you know. And and he's an, you know Cisco is like a very humble, but he's a genius, and so. Um, I would be like, oh yeah, what do you think about Thomas Ligotti? You know, and then just let him like talk about Ligotti or whatever. And and I was like, I'm getting an education. Um, <laughs> and uh, nice. yeah, so so like our our affection for each other, or maybe that's the thing we have affection for each other. Like like I, it's absolutely my like I absolutely respect their work, the the work of all these people. Um, I, I I love it. I look forward to it. I'm excited about it. But and that kind of led me then to to just be like, man, you guys are awesome. Um, and um, and and you know, I, I think it's just it's kind of it's cool, um, you know, to see your friends grow and develop and get better, um, and um, to uh, um, to just do these things that kind of spur you to up your game because you're like, man, you know, I. Um, um, I used to say this about Laird, especially, but it, 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 that that Laird was one of those people who keeps me honest. You know that that like if if I read something Peter Straub does, I'm like, oh, well, you know, that's Peter Straub, you know, and and I could sort of let myself off the hook. But I read something, uh, I read something Laird does, I'm like, oh, Laird, come on, he's your age, he's younger than you are, come on. Um, so so it's helpful to have friends who who help you to hold yourself to the standards you want to hold yourself to. You know, like like. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, it's funny cause I'm, I'm just thinking about all these, these, you know, people who's, it's like a con, like, like it's just a sort of loose, I don't know. It's not even like a solar system. It's more just like an asteroid belt or something. We all just kind of bang around and bump into each other, you know, because <laughs> there are people like Glenn Hirschberg, um, who, um, I mean, Glenn's on the, on the West coast. And so I don't get to see him as, as much, but I, I absolutely admire his work and, and the, the stuff that he does. He's a, he's a terrific writer. His, the fact that his vampire trilogy like, like was not really recognized the way it should have been is, is to me is just heartbreaking. I, I really hope that, that Tor kind of gets it together and maybe reissues them in like a single volume or something like that. Uh, that would, um, 
that would be great because it's it's fantastic. It's 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 um, it's it's that's just a great vampire trilogy. And it's just a great trilogy. It's just a great I've writer. I've never read it, man. Yeah, I've yeah, I've I, heard I, of it. But motherless motherless child is the first one, and then Good Girls is the second, and I think the last one is called Nothing to Devour. And they, you, I would at this point, I would recommend taking the chance and at least I don't know how much they are all uh, all of them are together, say on Kindle or something. I'm thinking you're like, oh, money's tight. I get it, um, but it's nice to be able to go from one to the other because each one picks up pretty much right where the one before leaves off, mm. um, and and then it's interesting. It picks up where the one before leaves off, and then there's like a little bit of a gap of time. So I think just that's why I say like I think if they were in one omnibus edition, and none of the novels is particularly long, I, I think that might really help readers to just like like sort of immerse themselves in it and just be like, oh, okay, here you know, here we go. We're in this world of of Hirschberg's vampires. Um, but yeah, people, uh, uh, S.P. Miskowski, um, another, another terrific writer. Um, it, it, uh, yeah, there's, there's just, there's so many, and that's just kind of like my rough, like approximate generation. That's just like a, uh, like the arbitrary, uh, uh, metric of age. Um, you know, it, like, like go, go a, a little bit further in either direction. There's people like Jeff Ford and Elizabeth Hand, or there's people like Nadia Balkan, um, there's uh, there's just like a uh, 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 an abundance, an overabundance, a cornucopia of of talent right now. That word cannot be used in too many natural ways, and you just use cornucopia perfectly. <laughs> We're not even talking about Thanksgiving, man. So I want to touch on. You know what? Brendan and I talked about this before uh, when we were going – because he has questions, and uh, I'm going to ask them at the appropriate time. But um, I'm going to refuse to answer Brendan. <laughs> yeah, suck it, Brendan. Yeah. Are you calling him Brendan on purpose? Maybe. Oh, okay, because if so, that's hilarious. If not, that's still funny to me. Um, <laughs> it, I'm going to start calling him Brandon next. I'm just going to sort of mess it. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to, like, run through different different mispronunciations. I did that on a few episodes, but I don't know if I said it. Uh, I didn't know if I highlighted enough for people carry on or if they're just like that's not funny and didn't acknowledge it um why did i talk in the first place let's see oh yeah because actually i don't remember damn it i'm tripping myself up on brandon he, he, had some, he had some questions but before we before we got <laughs> to his questions you wanted to talk about thanksgiving and the cornucopia <laughs> no now i'm getting more lost but I I love oh yeah that's what I wanted to say focused on uh, how you have a appreciation for each other and how your friends keep you honest. Um, I brought up Brennan for a reason because he does that with me. I read his the first short story read by him was two years ago or so, and uh, nothing wrong with it. But I've seen I beta read a lot of his stuff in that time and i read his uh debut novella that came out a month ago and i've read a bunch of his other longer stuff and i'm like man you're writing first i was writing more than you and now i'm just i feel like the roles are reversed i gotta get my ass into gear but it's it's there's no like ill feelings or jealousy or nothing it's just exciting it's like oh my friend's kicking ass well time for me to step up and do the same yeah uh, I want to jump into uh, your collection now. I keep saying it's a reissue. Is that fair? Is that the proper terminology? Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a reissue. It was it was um, it was published back at the end of two thousand and eight. Um, 
and um, I had some stories. I was I wasn't thinking about about publishing a collection. Um, I was working on my first novel, House of Windows, and um, and trying to trying to find a publisher for that. And um, some friends, actually Paul Tremblay, and I think Nick Mamatas too, contacted me, and each of them said, "Hey." I know uh, the guy at Prime Books, and there they have like a sort of open slot for a collection. And I suggested, uh, I suggested you, and so uh, I was like, "Thanks, guys." And I contacted Prime, and and they were like, "Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll do a book with you." So um, Elizabeth Hand agreed to write the introduction, and um, uh, which which she's agreed to to let us reprint. And um, and the book did okay, you know. It 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 sold uh, reasonably well. Um, I think it got a it got a Stoker nomination. Um, it was it, it got lovely reviews, um, and um, you know they did a, a an initial print run of a thousand copies that sold out. They did a second print run. I think it was seven hundred and fifty. Uh, might have been a thousand, but anyway, that came close to selling out. I don't. Uh, I think it probably is at this point. And, um, and I was like, okay, let's, let's keep going. The thing is selling, you know? Yeah. And, and they were like, no. And I was like, why, why, <laughs> you know, why not? And, yeah, that's and they, they were just like, now nah, we're done. We're, we're, you know, we got other things to do, you know, and it'll be a collector's item now. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not interested in producing a collector's item. I want, I want a book that people can read. And so for a while you could find copies that were, uh, you know, reasonably affordable, but in, in the last several years, it's just become ridiculous. Um, and it's, it's on the one, it's, it's weird, right? It's weird when, when you, somebody's like, have you seen this eBay listing? And you, know, you see this eBay listing and it's like $800. <laughs> like, Come on, that's not right. You know, and, that's and a dick of course, move. I'm right. Of course, I'm thinking to myself, damn, why don't, why don't I have any copy? Cause I was just given copy when I had, I had a bunch of copies and people would be like, do you have any copies? And I'm like, ah, oh, fine. I'll send you one, you know? And now I was like, ah, oh, I could have been making some serious cash out of this. Yeah. My son's <laughs> going to college. I should have held on to those books. And, um, so anyway, I, I finally, um, once I was sure that, that, uh, my agent was sure that we had the rights back from the publisher, um, I approached uh, Ross Lockhart because uh, Word Horde had done The Fisherman and, and um, my most recent collection, Children of the Fang. And, and I was like, are you interested? And he was like, yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, we, we had to do a new cover and, and new formatting and that. Um, it's, it's, he has it, Ross has it scheduled for the end of this month uh, to come out. Um, so, you know, I was, I was trying to write a new story for it. I don't, I don't think that's going to work at, at this point, if, if it comes out in, in the end of September. And maybe that's, you know, I kind of go back and forth on it, like, because part of me thinks if someone has the book already, like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't do like a gimmick to make them buy a new version, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like that's like, you know, like a band would put out their greatest hits album and it would have like one new song on it. And you'd be like, well, I got to buy the album for the new song, you know? Um, and maybe that's maybe speaking of dick moves, maybe that's kind of a dick <laughs> move, you know? So, better so than that, Mr. Right, maybe I should, maybe <laughs> I should not, you know, but I, I have actually started a story I just have not had the time to to finish it, so I don't know what I'll do with that. I may maybe Ross will, will put it up on the words the Word Horde website or something like that, make it a freebie or or something. I I don't know. But how many, how many words is it? Uh, I don't know. It's probably not going to be that long. It's probably only going to be like five thousand words. I say that, and it'll probably be like twenty five thousand words. You know, but Here, I have. Here's the thing for potential readers that haven't read your stuff, that I don't think you're going to say your short stories aren't 
average average length for most writer short stories. <laughs> yeah, I I um some guy uh it was Rick Cleffel, I think, um, who used to do this program called the um the Agony Report, I think it was, and he interviewed me for it. And he, when he put up the recording of the interview, he he called uh, he called it something like a book full of novels or something, like that, <laughs> which was which was very it was very flattering because I thought, yeah, that's in in a way that's true that I approach a lot of times writing uh, writing short stories like like they're really novelettes or novellas, and and I approach them like as little novels. It's only. It's only really in um, in my last collection in Children of the Fang, like, like which is to say, like within the last like five to ten years, really five years, I would say that I've started to sort of figure out how to write a shorter story. For a long time, I, I was desperate to write short, short stories because I would see all these calls for uh, submissions, uh, and I'd be like, oh man, if only I could write like if if I wasn't writing a forty five thousand word story, you know, like like I could I could submit to all of these, and I, I just I couldn't. Um, I just couldn't manage it. And I still find it a challenge. Everything I write just wants to grow and grow and grow. Mm. Um, but, um, um, and you know, there's life that gets in the way and all that sort of stuff as, as well. You have a two year old, you know about this. Yeah. I love him so much, but, uh, some days I would just like to write in the morning. That's my, I, I can't complain cause he's the greatest gift in this world and I'll never get this time back. So, Hopefully, if I'm alive down the down the road, I can write in the morning when I'm older. But for me, ideally, I don't know if you have a preference for a writing time. But if I could write every morning from like seven to ten, I'd be I'd be super happy. Try the try the Joe Lansdale approach where it's like uh, write three hours a day and, and you're done instead of twelve hours a day or whatever. Like some writers. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, 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 not at all. I I just I was I was going to say yeah I um. I write. I used to write really well in the morning. Now I would say I write better at night. Um, but yeah, you know, having that time is is a really good thing. I think the other thing I would say is is that um, when um, when my son was born, when when my wife was pregnant with my son, she's a uh, now a tenured uh, professor at, at mm. the local college, and so the plan was oh. Um, she'll, she'll go in and teach and I'll stay home with the baby and, and write. And I, and I had this like little picture of myself, like here I am at the computer typing away, like rocking my son. Like he's like in his cradle and I'm rocking him with one foot or something. And you know, that was not what happened. So let's just, just, just put that right. away. And, and there was, and, and that was, which, which was entirely normal. And I see lots and, and, and I really, I felt really panicked because at that point, I had um, I had three stories published. It was it was a story a year, um, and um, and I was doing okay. You know, I was getting some notice, and I'd had a couple of award nominations and stuff. And and suddenly, I just I couldn't do anything because he was he had um, colic, baby acid reflux. Mm. He he didn't sleep through the night uh, for any longer than three or four hours. So my wife and I were just like the walking wounded. You know, we were right. just like you know, and and. And and I felt really kind of panicky, like, oh my God, I'm gonna lose all of this. The sleep deprivation didn't help, you know? Sure. And and obviously here I am. And um um I I I survived, you know, like like I he eventually he started sleeping through the night, you know. It 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 eventually he got to the point where he was like, ah, I don't really need to spend any time with you, you know. So um 
so so I, I I I feel like whenever I see parents with with new or young children saying, "Oh my God, you know, it's so overwhelming," and what am I going to do about my writing? Like, like I just want to say, don't worry about your writing. Your writing will still be there. Yeah. Just sleep. You need to sleep. You need to you need to take care of yourself. You need to sleep when you can sleep. You need to take care of the baby. The baby is going to grow. It doesn't seem like it because sometimes it feels like the hours just drag by. But but the baby is going to grow super quick. And before you know it, that baby is going to be in kindergarten or preschool or whatever. And if nothing else, the baby is going to go to sleep and you're going to have like an hour where you can write. So just like hang in there. Don't beat yourself up about it. Um, it will get better. It does get better. Um, and most writers, the, the thing to... I guess to keep in mind, like, like, be, I feel like in America in particular, we're addicted to this idea of like youthful success. And we look at like F. Scott Fitzgerald and he writes this side of paradise <laughs> when he's 21 and all this kind right. of stuff. And, uh, um, but most writers, uh, they don't start, they, I think it was, um, geez, it was, I, I think it was John Scalzi who said this, that most writers write their first novel in their forties or their fifties. Um, so that's something to keep in mind, you know, and, and here's the thing, like someone like Toni Morrison publishes her first novel when she's 40, she still wins the Pulitzer Prize and the Nobel <laughs> yeah. Prize for literature. So kind of like, like, right. So, so like, <laughs> like, so you're like, no, but that's too late. I'll miss out on everything. No, you not necessarily don't, don't worry about it. You know? It, so I, I, and Penelope Fitzgerald uh, publishes her first novel in her sixties and she wins the Booker Prize and lives to her 80s and, you know, publishes about, I don't know, 10 or 12 novels or something. Like, so, so there's, there's always, like, like, I know that we, um, um, what's the story about the, um, uh, enjoy yourself, it's later than you think, that's on the, uh, the tombstone, you know, and, and like, I know that we often feel that way, oh, it's later than I think, I, you know, and, and I get it, we don't know how much time we have, but I, I, I think that, the worrying that you do about that doesn't help you. Um, so it's it's better just um, hang in there. Um, if, if you have a, a family, especially a young family, devote your time to them. Hey, if you can squeeze in some writing, that's awesome. If, if you can squeeze in 15 minutes, even an hour, great. Absolutely do that. If the baby goes for a nap and, and you can jot down 15 minutes, then do that. Like, like, don't. And I think even Lansdale says that, that Lansdale says, you know, if you can find like 10 or 15, it doesn't have to be three hours. You can find 10 or 15 minutes, jot down a couple of paragraph or something and just slowly chip away at whatever you want to do. Do that. That's if, if, and that way you can tell yourself, I'm still doing it, still doing a little bit at a, at a time. Um, it's, uh, um, it's, it's something that, that I, I think, I feel like a lot of creative writing classes and a lot of kind of the way we, we portray writers and we think about writers, um, None of them have families or, or, or they're like, it's like, yeah, right. it's like the guy, the guy is the writer, but his wife just takes care of everything for him, you know, and, and she ain't going to work. Yeah. That, that's <laughs> not, that, you know, look, um, the realities of publishing have changed so much that, um, it's very difficult to make a living. It's always been difficult to make a living as a writer, but the mid list those writers who who sell but aren't blockbusters, that has disappeared. It's really been taken up by the small presses, and so um, uh, and the small presses do fantastic work. And in some cases, I would say they're doing the Lord's work. So God bless them. But <laughs> um, 
but but they don't you know the the money is not their their like like lots of money is is not really their thing so um so it's just not possible to to do it um uh in the way that you could maybe in the 60s uh when the cost of living was cheaper too right you know what and i'll throw one more name there that i heard about through uh uh nailed game and i forget what he was talking about because um I love listening to people talk. This is why I got the show. I love picking brains, and, and I can ask questions now. But uh, Neil, Neil Gaiman was on it's either a panel or just a Q&A. He threw out a name that I never heard of before. Uh, this is going back a few years. R.A. Lafferty. He's yeah, yeah. A, but I don't know how many people actually know about him. He's an American sci-fi fantasy writer. And uh, he's got quite the bibliography. He, he passed away uh, almost 20 years ago. But... He didn't start. He was in the military. He was a electrician, I want to say. He didn't get his first story, not book. His first story published until he was 45. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he really took off, if I remember correctly, when he was retired. And uh, I'll bring him up again, Ron Kelly. Um, he was writing for Zebra. And as far as I know, that was like the biggest mass paper market uh, publisher back then. And he stopped writing for 10 years and he's, he picked it up in 2006 and for some reason, and I know this because of how much I talked to him, things didn't really start picking up from until about a year ago. And he's, this guy has quite the bibliography himself. And, uh, just, just goes to show you different people have different paths, but, I want to comment something, a few things you talked about, if that's all right. And I feel like you kind of like know my life the way that you just described some things. But I think it's a a thing of us writers, how we feel about how we have to get this done now. Um, It wasn't until after we talked to Peter Straub, after I had read, um, was it the Blue Rose Trilogy? And then we talked to him where it amplified my love for... Because when you read a piece of writing and you love it, and then you read, uh, talk to the creator, and you're like, they're such a nice person. For me, anyways, it makes me love their work more. I don't, I don't know if that's how you're wired, but for some reason, that's how my brain is, and um, it, it just made me think. I don't have. I got three, four short stories published. I, I've written over ten novels, and at this point in my time, since 2013. A million words. So there's a lot of writing, very few published. And I'm not knocking people that self-publish or anything, but I'm glad I didn't choose that route. I did try that once in 2014. I pulled it but because I'm embarrassed of it. That's my early stuff. But my whole point to bring this up is uh, I'm now at the point as a full-time worker, as a father of a young guy, uh, a little guy, I'm not rushing now. I just want to have fun writing. I want to try to get some novels out, and um, and I haven't felt this way since I started writing, seriously writing in 2013, because I would spend like six hours some days and writing, I'd, I'd feel exhausted, and uh, now I just, I know I want, I want to get my first debut novel out there when it's ready, and, and prep it until then, and just have it, in my opinion, blow open some doors that I didn't think were going to be blown uh, for my debut, meaning I want to be proud of it forever. 
And and it's really freeing when you, for me anyways, when you hit that point where you're not constantly pressuring yourself with, I got to get this workout done today and then tomorrow. So I hope I didn't blabber on too much. But No, no, not at all. Not just at all. to piggyback off of stuff you said, how I can personally relate to that. And again, this is new for me. This isn't, uh, we just had Peter on a month ago, I think it was. But something about talking to that guy, man, and, and just uh, – for me, I think I said in the episode, Coco, you you brought up Christine with uh, being that book that diff you. For me, it's Coco. There's mm-hmm. something about that book, and I just I'm floored by it. And I'm like, that's my goal. That's what I want to yeah. write. And I'm not gonna to get to that. Like I'm not saying I'm gonna write something of his stature. I mean, he, I'm like you. He's up here, <laughs> and I'm like. Oh, it came to right, me on right, the screen. Right, right. And, but I'm like, that's what I want to shoot for. And you don't do that by get, doing anything but giving it your all. So it, it kind of like humbled my, or not humbled, it, it pulled my uh, anxiety down with that too. So that's my long-winded way of saying it's very freeing to not be like that. And for me, it took eight or nine years to reach that point, but it feels amazing. Uh, I, I'm not a pain in the ass with my wife anymore. Like I got to get this right and done. And Lansdale said one more thing and then uh, I'll get handed over to you. He said one thing to me about uh, write a sentence a day. Cause I, I reached out to him when uh, the last month I've just been struggling with writing. Um, but I've been okay with it because I, I kind of know what I want to do now. Uh, with my own writing and I just reach out to him. I'm like, I, I, I'm just, I'm not sure like what's going on and whatnot. He goes, write, write one sentence a day. He goes, seriously, just write one sentence a day at first. And uh, I've done that and it feels good. I get it out of my system and I'm like, I've never heard that advice before. So the other thing he said too was, you know, family's first. Um, family's first forever. So that's all I got to say in that. Your turn, sir. <laughs> no, no, it's 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 Joe's absolutely right. Um, it it uh, um, the 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 one of the pictures we have of the artist, I think, and again, I, I think of this as coming out of the 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 kind of twentieth century, especially, is is of the artist as like you know selfish inherently. The art, and, and whether it's writing or painting or acting or whatever, you know, sort of the person who's a genius, but in order to be a genius, they've got to be like horrible to everybody around them and, and, right. and selfish and, and so on, you know. And and I, I kind of reject that, you know. I I um, I I um, I I just think to myself that if 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 my art has to come at the cost of like everyone I know and love, then, uh, you know, maybe that's not such a good thing. And, and, uh, I'm sure there are some writers out there who were like, ah, you're a wimp, you know, (laughs) (laughs) don't have to worry about him. Then he's not willing to sacrifice his family. But, um, I just, I, I don't, um, I, I just don't think that those two things, I, I, I feel like my family ultimately has made me a better writer because they've given me a better life and a fuller life. Um, if, if I wanted to be um, a real jerk about it, I would be like, they've given me lots of stuff to draw on, you know, but it's, it's that they, they make me happier. Um, they, 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 they give me a, a life that is meaningful, you know, beyond writing beyond, you know, just, just, and, and so um, 
I, uh, I'm not saying it's for everybody. I'm not saying everybody has to have a family, but I am just saying if you do have a family, you, your family doesn't necessarily like, like I think some writers think of it as like, it's like a millstone around their neck, you know, oh, there's they're such a drag on me. Um, no, they're, they're not. They, they, they do ask things of you, you know, yeah, that's true. But you ask things of, of them too. Um, and, and keep in mind the family is a dynamic situation. And, and that a young family is very different from, I mean, now my wife and I look at each other and we're like, what do we do? You know, our kid's off at college, you know, and, and we're just like, you know, it, it's so, I mean, we dress the dogs up in little costumes and act out plays, but that only goes on for so long. And then you're like, all right, we need to write the next installment, you know? Um, so I, I think that, um, and I think that what, what Joe said, you know, in, in whatever situation you're in, you do what you can do. So if it's just one sentence, then you do that. You do the one sentence. Um, and as, as more time becomes available to you, um, maybe you can increase that, you know, to two sentences or three or a page, you know, who knows? But I, I think that there's, um, I do think this is an effect of social media. I, I really do. I've, I've really, I think that writers probably always have felt this way. That I'm missing out. You know, I, I got a Hemingway has a new book out. I got to get one out. But I think that in, <laughs> right. in, in these days uh, where, where, um, man, you know, the, there's just a new, like, like everybody has a new book out, you know? And, and I think even if you're just trying to read, if you want to stay current with the field, it's, um, it's impossible. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think there's just, there's, there's, Oh, you got to read this. You got it. And I think that's something, you know, maybe that's the, the advantage of having, um, like my sort of friend group is I, I do feel I want to stay current, uh, with what they're doing. Um, and as long as I can do that, I'll try to read other stuff too. Sure. Absolutely. But, but if I, like, at least if I'm staying current with what they're doing, I feel like, okay, I'm keeping up with something. Yeah. Yeah, definitely fair. So let's get back to, and we didn't name it, uh, for those that haven't read it yet for potential readers, your reissue of your very first collection is called Mr. Gaunt and other uneasy encounters. Um, I I really enjoyed it all around. It's just like it's it's a solid collection, man. And I don't know how you're gonna take that. I only mean that as a no, no. Thank you. I appreciate compliment. it. It's, it's early work, you know. Like now, at the time, I was like, here I am, you know. But <laughs> um, and I'm I'm still proud of it. I still love the stories in it. But um, um, yeah, I, I'm not the same writer I was when I when I wrote them. Um, Mister the titular. Uh, story mr gaunt though that was my absolute favorite that in uh two, was it tutor is that um tutorial tu that tutorial one. that's it because it took i mean like i, I love stories about writing but only if it's kind of like i don't want to hear the same old retelling of a, a writer who's just you know a drunk or whatever but what you did with tutorial was so damn cool so that's gonna lead me to brendan's first question about this so you don't have to answer brendan lafairgo's uh question i don't know how to say his last name anymore it was can you talk about your experiences with the overwhelming writing rules of academia do you really hate strunk and white ah uh, yeah um actually where that came from brandon is um i um so the the first summer, uh, well, okay. So um, I'm just I'm just trying to think of the, the sort of chain of events. Okay, so my first story, uh, the first story in that collection, actually, is well, Amskua Island, my first professionally published story. Um, 
I I sent that out, and then I was I was trying to write um, a second story, um, and um, and then that story got accepted for on School Island got accepted for publication. I was like, oh my god! So I I kind of like like wrote a, an early version of Mister Gaunt, and I sent it to a magazine, and they rejected it. And when they rejected it, they were like, you need to read Strunk and White. And I was really pissed off. And I was like, who do they think they are? You know, and, <laughs> and uh, my wife was like, you know, you should write like a book. Or you should write a story where Strunk and White is like the evil book. Like it's like the Necronomicon, you know. That's so and, funny. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. So, so you know, in some ways the story, like there, there are some ways in which the st- which tutorial, like I'm like, oh, man, this is a little hand. There are things about it I really love. Like I, I um uh, that there were kind of weird effects and the and the the tutors, the individual tutors, I, I really like. I really like how weird they are. But I feel in some ways it's a little like it's like my artistic cry from the heart, you know, and and I'm, I'm I, I sometimes feel like, oh, maybe I kind of laid it on a little a little too thick there, you know, but but then um, I get one person that there's a um, if you've read the story, then you know that there's a scene where the editor has this this knife that he plunges into this manuscript. And uh, I had this woman write to me and she was like, where can I get one of those knives? And I was like, <laughs> that is really freaky. That's, you know, that's not the person you're supposed to identify with. He's the bad guy, you know. Um, but, yeah, it was it was, a you know, kind of youthful, like like um, this is what I want to do. These are the things I want to do. These are the writers I admire. Um, and, um, so I, I would say that like, I, ironically for me, it wasn't so much academia. Um, I, I would say, so, so like there I was responding specifically to a, to a magazine. I, I kind of, I, I did place it in an academic setting in part that the, there was, um, there was, oh, how do I put this delicately? Um, when I was an undergraduate, I I thought about being a creative writing major, uh, for obvious reasons, um, and I talked to a few people. There were only a couple of people and a couple of teachers in the creative writing program, and there were um, I knew a couple of people who taken classes with them, and uh, there was one. In fact, I remember there was one girl who was a big Clive Barker fan, and we sort of you know bonded over that, and and mm-hmm. she was like, yeah. She was like, every time like I, I I give this guy one of my fantasy stories, I get like a D. And I, I just get told, no, this is not, you know, this is not what you should be doing. This is garbage. Oh, and she's and I remember I remember one one week she said, you know, I went to the Albany bus terminal this weekend. I had this crazy, but like, and I just wrote that. I just wrote like this is like like I just wrote like basically like almost like a journalistic account of what I did. And he still was like, this is unbelievable. This would never happen, you know. That so, uh, yeah, he, he was. I mean, his his so his thing, I, I mean, to exaggerate, but only to exaggerate a little bit, uh, apparently, was if you if you wrote about, like, you know, your first sexual experience and how disappointing it was, A. Um, and, um, uh, you know, it, so so I was really I was kind of discouraged by that because I, I felt that um, uh I wanted to do crazy things, whether I, I don't know, even, you know, not necessarily even horror, um, but just weird stuff, Flannery O'Connor stuff. Um, and, um, and to know that I, I couldn't do that because this guy was like, no, you're going to write, you know, in this particular way. I think that that did intersect with the strunk and white stuff. So I take it back. There is some academic kind of stuff in there as, as well. Um, it was weird though, you know, because I, I, I had a, a lovely professor um, 
as an undergrad and, and when I did my um, master's degree, um, who she was the best. And she said some of the best and some of the worst things to me. You know, she told me not to write horror fiction because horror fiction was not literature, which I still remember. On the other hand, she told me I was going to be a good writer because I was a reader, because I, I was an English major. I wasn't a creative writing major. And she was like, you're reading. And that's really, really important. So that and that helped me to because there were times I was like, oh, man, but I'm not a creative writing major. But to be told, hey, hey, it's cool. You're doing the reading. You're doing the you know, the background work, I guess you would say that was, that was helpful. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sigmund Freud would probably have a lot to say about that first feature. (laughs) 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 Oh, he was terrible. Yeah. It's it's, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Sounds like a, was a dumpster fire teacher. (laughs) Well, he just, you know, the guy had, he actually, he was, um, he did this thing where he had a novel come out. And a friend of mine was in his in his class, and uh, was an American literature class. And uh, uh, he said, "Oh, you know, the first day of class, going over the syllabus." And he said, uh, "Well, you know, our class is supposed to go up to the contemporary day, and I just had a novel come out. Well, why don't we read that?" And I just oh was like, "Dude, uh, you know." So every now and again, like like when I've taught college, when I've taught high school, and my students find out that I that I write, I've had them say, "Hey." can we read your stuff? And I'm like, absolutely not. Like you can read it on your own, but I'm not going to make you guys buy my stuff and read my stuff. That's not cool. You know, it's, it's because either you might tell me you don't like it and then I'm going to be pissed off or, (laughs) or you might tell me, Oh, I love it. But you just, you know, you're, you're just kissing up. So. Yeah. And in that position, you are in a position of power, um, at least temporarily with them. And yeah, I mean, I would feel the same way. I want to know if they were kissing my ass enough for a better grade. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, it's yeah. just not a That's good position. That's just uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good position for anybody to be in. Right. Uh, Brendan's, uh, no, actually, was it? Not Brendan. Brampton? I don't know. Brennan? Brampton. Uh, I like Brampton. That's good. Brampton Stoker asks uh, about the story. I'm going to mess it up. Lao Cohen, yeah. Lao Cohen or the singularity. What are your thoughts on superheroes and comics as modern day mythology compared to the Norse and Greek classics? Damn, that's a good question. That's yeah. a really good question. I mean, I, I think there's, there's, um, there's more truth to it even than seems to be the case. You know, the, um, I love mythology and I've always loved um, the Greeks and the Vikings. And, you know, I'm always mm. fascinated to learn about, about new mythologies. But one of the things you learn if, if you, you do even just a little bit of digging about the, the, like, say, the Greeks, is that their stories and their characters changed over time. Um, and, and so um, they, they, you know, it's not to say that they discarded old stories, but they were like, well, there was other things that happened too, you know, and, and, um, and then in the case of the Greeks, you know, what's kind of complicates matters further is then the Romans are like, oh, you mean our gods, you know, and they take all the Greek gods and, and then they change them even more. Right. So that um, and that's very much the, like it, it's not difficult to, to see a kind of analogy to what happens or has happened with superhero comics. Um, you know, when Spider-Man, who was one of my favorites when I was a kid, um, when Spider-Man shows up um he is, I'm trying to think if the Fantastic Four came, I think the Fantastic Four came first and then Spider-Man, but like, he's one of the founding, one of the original Marvel heroes. In fact, one of the first things he tries to do is get a job with the Fantastic Four because he's like, I need money. Oh, uh, wait, I think that's the first one. 
Yeah, it might, it might be. It might be the actual first Spider, proper Spider-Man. Where he yeah. goes to, to, so, like, like what's happened to Spider-Man now where he's, like, Iron Man's protege and all that kind of stuff? Um, I get why they're doing it. Like, like, but there is a there is a little part of me that's like, no, no, Spider-Man is there before Iron Man. Spider-Man right. is doing his own thing. He doesn't need mentoring by by Iron Man or by anybody. Um, he's he's you know the, he is your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. He's doing and he doesn't need a suit that's like all sort of high tech and that. You know, he's he makes his own web shooters and his own web fluid, but like um and his own little camera, but but like he's um, and I'm not saying, you know, there, there have been interesting uh, stories that have taken Peter Parker sort of further into his own future, you know, as, as he gets older. But um, so anyway, um, yeah, I, I think that that um, I think that, that comics are absolutely a, a form of mythology for us. And, and like mythology, you know, mythology changes over over time. Um, characters, um, um, you know, the the Greek and the Roman philosophers, for example, were really scandalized by Zeus slash Jupiter because of, you know, in, in his earliest versions, uh, he's just having sex with everything. Um, he's just, everyone, I guess, he's just, but, but as everything, he's like, now I'm a swan, now I'm a bull, now I'm a rain of gold. Um, and like he's George R. R. Martin just saying, like, let's fuck everything, kill everything. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's, he's uh, yeah, George, yeah, anyway. And, um, <laughs> He uh, uh, and and so like like the philosophers were kind of scandalized and they would be like no no Zeus is like he's the greatest god and and he's he's full of compassion and it starts to sound very much like the the sort of Judeo Christian god you know that that well if 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 we have this great powerful god he has to be this compassionate figure and so on so anyway you know things change over time for when when I was a kid for a long time not a kid even I'm just thinking like in the nineties. Um, into the early 2000s, probably, you know, Iron Man just like he kind of ran his course as a character. Um, and and um, at one point they, uh, um, geez, what was it? They're like like Tony Stark's younger self came forward in time to be Iron Man. And, and at another point in time, he was he became a bad guy. Like like un until Robert Downey Jr. sort of reinvigorated that character just with the force of his own personality. Um and then suddenly we were like, oh, my God, Iron Man, he's he's great. But but he was um, he was probably a safe character for for Marvel to try their first movie with right. because he, he was at that point, you know, sort of like a second tier character. Um, and um, now, of course, he's he's one of the you know, one of the major Marvel characters. They'll uh, they'll have him back before too long, I'm sure. Yeah. Plus, you know what? At the time, too. When did that come out? Did that come out in like two thousand one, two, whatever it was? It was two thousand eight. Oh, was uh, it? Was Holy Iron shit. Man? Yeah, yeah. It was. It was pretty. It was pretty. Um, it was two thousand eight. Yeah. Yeah. So bring that up because it was still a hot button issue with like the you know mid Middle Eastern war and it still is today. But yeah, that was a fresher point. That was a closer time than nine eleven. Then today so I, i'm sure that helped a little bit too because at least as an american i'm like oh yeah he's killing these assholes that try hurting everyone even their own kind yeah it was it was definitely um an updated version of of uh, of the figure i mean iron man's always been involved in the kind of military industrial complex you know right right from the get-go it was just originally he was 
I want to say originally it was Vietnam, or sort of thinly disguised Vietnam that, that he's injured in and that he develops the armor and, and so on. Mm. Um, and just over time, it just... Um, um, there, there was an interesting reboot of Iron Man um, in the late 90s um, after the whole mm-hmm. onslaught thing where they tried to tie his origin to the Hulk's origin, but they were both injured in the bomb and he gets the, the metal through his heart and uh, the you know Bruce Banner becomes the Hulk, but... That, yeah, okay, that was just like trivia, yeah. I never watched that. Sounds like it could be funny or really bad, but uh, I was curious. Uh, I, I think it was that one that Brennan just mentioned, La, La Coon or The Singularity. That was with the uh, the Vikings, right? The dig and whatnot? No, no, that's the first one on Skua Island. That's the oh, Vikings. Shit. Yeah, okay. La Coon is the one with the statue. Um, right, that's the, the last one. Yeah, 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 the big one. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, that was that was a longish one, but I bring up uh, uh, Skew Island because it reminded me of this movie that came out last year called, well, actually this year, sorry, it's still 2021, uh, The Dig. Uh, did you see that? It came out on Netflix? It, you know, I haven't. I, I, I keep, It's about the Sutton Who discovery, yeah, with Ray Fiennes, and, and uh, yeah, no, I haven't seen that one yet, but, but all that stuff... Um, it was one of the things that my wife and I kicked around at a certain point. We were talking about like mummy stories and all this kind of stuff. And and I think she was the one who was like, oh, you know, bog mummies and that. That would be a different a different way to approach that. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, and ultimately that led to the story. That's such a good movie. My wife and I watched it when it came out on Netflix. Um, uh, he had one more question, and it is about Skew Island. How did you go about developing the story with a story? Langan-esque style we see in the fisherman on Skewa Island and Mr. Gaunt. Uh, yeah, that seems to be my thing. You know, it, it's sort of funny. Um, um, it, was some, it was like Simon Stranzas, I think, once posted a picture. And there was a photo of a guy holding a frame. And inside the frame, there's another frame. And inside that <laughs> frame, there's another frame and so on. And he was like, here's a graphic of a typical John Langan story. <laughs> And I was like, you're not funny, Simon. Of course, everybody yeah. was like, that's hysterical, you know. Um, but um, in, in part, Onsco Island came about because I was writing, uh, I was taking a class. I was taking a graduate class. Um, and, and it was the focus of the class was on contemporary kind of like reworkings or revisitings of um, specifically Victorian era material. And... Um, one of the things we could do for uh, our final paper was we could write our own ver- our own story, and I was like score. So um, I I thought well you know a very Victorian thing is is the club story is people sitting more later Victorian but anyway is people sitting around just telling stories and and I thought okay that's what I'm going to do I'll have a bunch of people that are sitting around and that's how we'll we'll tell the uh, we'll get the story in. and and. Um, and that became, um, yeah, that became a, a, a kind of thing I wound up doing and returning to over and over again in, in, in The Fisherman uh, in, in particular. And I, you know, I'm not sure why I find it so congenial. Part of me thinks that it's because a lot of the stuff that I read and I loved when I was a kid, um, Faulkner stuff, um, is, is, you know, has all sorts of like sort of dramatic monologues, I guess you would say in it. I read a lot of... Um, uh, and a lot of stories within stories within it. Um, so a lot of Joseph Conrad's, like like uh, Heart of Darkness and Lord Jim, um, have uh, you know the character of Marlowe telling stories. 
um, Robert Louis Stevenson, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There's there's stories within that. Right. Um, even Frankenstein, you know, the monster tells his his story. So, yeah. um, and I'm sure there are, there are other. I, I know there are other examples. I'm just I'm just not thinking of at the moment. But I really love that form. And and so there's there's that that I have been exposed to it. But also my um, both my mom and my dad were were uh, well, my mom still is. Um, really good storytellers they they grew up in britain um uh after the the second world war there wasn't a lot in the way of entertainment tvs or whatever it was mostly radio you might go to the dance hall but you also had to be able to to tell stories to sort of entertain yourself and entertain others and when i was a kid you know my brother and i uh, had a pretty strict bedtime uh nine o'clock um, but there might be a movie on like a James Bond movie. Mm. Um, and, um, so we could watch like the first half hour of it, which was almost all commercials, you know, and then we had to go to sleep. <laughs> I was like, oh, come on. But then my dad would like narrate the entire movie to us the next day. And then James Bond says, and then, you know, and of course he would cut out all the sexy stuff, you know, right. it, uh, um, it, uh, uh, so I think that's part of it too, is, is that it's part of, um, um, it goes back to my own sort of childhood and, and family experience. That's great. Um, yeah. So for, for me, my favorite, like I said, was Mr. Gaunt. And I just like what you did with the character itself. I don't know how else to word phrase it without spoilers. So I'll just say like the revelations in that story with Mr. Gaunt was just, it, it, you could make it really corny. But you didn't, and I, I was, <laughs> to picture it, I'm like, this is so creepy. If I saw that, I'd shit my pants. Yeah, no, I, I um, that, the monster in that story was suggested to me by my older son, who's now, it just turned 31, but, but at the time he was, I don't know, God, seven or eight, and, um, actually, I'm trying, it's interesting, how old, no, he's probably a little older than that. He was he was probably around ten or eleven, anyway, and um, uh, he had written a story about this particular monster, and he was like, "I think you should write a story about this." And I was like, "Okay," uh, and it worked out, you know. It, but it was funny because he gave me he so he suggested that, and then another friend of mine, a, a former teacher, said, "No, no, you that that monster, you couldn't do anything with that. It's it's not scary. It's just a bad idea." So then that the, the, so there were like. On the one hand, there was the impetus of my son saying, you should do this. And then there was also the kind of like, you can't do this or, or that, which which made me think, no, I'm going to do it now. I'm challenge. Gonna, yeah, challenge accepted, you know. I, You know, if you told me that, what your monster would be beforehand, I'd be interested to see how you play it out. But right away, my my asshole mind would say, that's probably going to be pretty corny. Because you see, you see it in some movies. And um, I'm not going to name examples again. Don't want to spoil it, but you pulled it off, man. And it's just it, it's for me, it was the different layers of focal uh, points like your details with um, <laughs> man. This is hard not to we, we try not to spoil books, so uh, I'll keep it very vague. I don't like doing that, but it's it, it's the vague, it, it's the details that you pepper in there where it's pointing out like this is another part of the monster this is another aspect of what they aren't doing and they're those two components are supposed to be together but they're not um 
it's all creepy and it's perfect and you have this really great way of building up tension and if you if you're okay with it i'd like to jump to the fisherman unless you want to sure actually... no no that's i appreciate that i uh, thank you I, I appreciate the kind words it's it's still one of my favorite stories um and it's I, a lot of fun I, I come back to um i have come back to um the one of the characters in it um actually two of the characters in it um in in more recent stuff so um it, it's sort of you know that there were things uh um and, and i have a, a a novella that also deals with them so and anyway that's well eventually i'll finish that and when did you say it's coming out uh that well ross has it listed for the end of the month the end of september so okay. um I, uh, yeah, I, I, I presume that's what we're, that's what we're doing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm focused right now on the next book, uh, uh, which is another collection of stories, uh, called Corpse Mouth and, and other autobiographies. And we're trying to get that out around Thanksgiving. So I just finished writing the new story for that and I'm typing that up and typing up the story notes. So that's been my focus really is, is getting that book done and, and, uh, um, getting the last bits of that book done and so we can get it to the printer and so on. So I think Ross is just going to go ahead with uh, with Mr. Gaunt so that that's out there. Man, you got the coolest damn titles for collections like Sephira and Other Betrayals. And the picture for Sephira, it reminds me of um, uh, Odysseus's tale where he's seen this. It's not Cyclops in your cover, but it's... No, it, it has it, that sort of feel of this big monster that would eat Yeah, you. yeah. 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 No, I've, I've been very lucky both um, when uh, when my first novel was published, uh, House of Windows, the guys at Nightshade Press, um, they had this sort of like, uh, this is before they were bought up by Skyhorse, they had this kind of like, um, and not even a stable, that's not the right word for it, they just kept track of artists, they just had like, like and, and so there was this uh, Santiago Caruso, um, uh, Argentinian uh, artist, and and they were like, we want this guy to do the cover for your novel, and uh, and so I was like, great. And then when I did uh, my second and and uh, so Wide Carnivorous Sky, and then Safira, um, I uh, I said to Derek Hussey at Hippocampus Press, can we use this guy? And he was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And Santiago was like, absolutely. And um, so then with the more recent stuff. Uh, uh, Children of the Fang and, and now Corpse Mouth. Um, I wanted a different look for those because I, I wanted I wanted them because um, uh, the fishermen had come out through Word Horde and and these are also coming out through Word Horde. I wanted them to have a similar a more similar cover design. So mm. we went with uh, with Matthew Jaffe who um, he actually did the cover to Laird's uh, second collection, Occultation. Um, so he's, uh, and so he's redesigned, he's done a new cover for Mr. Gaunt and he's working on a new cover for Corpse Mouth as well. Yeah. I haven't seen the new cover for Mr. Gaunt. I'm really, yeah, it's, it's still, it's still under wraps. I, I've seen it though. So, and it, actually the funny thing is, is what we're talking, what we've been trying not to give away, it completely gives away. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but in a really cool way, in a really, in a really nifty way. Okay. Uh, just to list off and i you know what i'll i'll tell you i haven't read this collection or Safira, and i want to there's just so many damn books that you gotta you gotta read oh uh, no i hear you i hear you we try again we try limiting it to like six guests a month but i'm the producer of the show and i tend to be a bad one in the sense where i get like eight or nine because i, I want to talk to everybody sure sure yeah yeah 
But Children of the Fang, uh, it's not the full title. It's Children of the Fang and other genealogies. That's so cool, man. It's just like, it makes sense. It, it makes complete sense because even if the stories aren't tied together in a collection, in a way, if it's like, if we're breaking it down to say like animal, the animal kingdom, you're going to have this class of species mixed with that one. And it's, it's going to be one package, if you will. So other genealogies to me makes sense. Now I could be completely off base with that, but I, I love your titles because they kind of, they don't, I don't know how to word this. They don't feel like collection titles in the sense where it's not just like a collection or what have you. Um, is that something you, you'd set your goal, your, your sights on to, to always have a unique take on a, a title for each collection? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I mean, with the first collection, um, I, I thought Mr. Gaunt was the, was the right title for the collection, but I felt like it was not enough. Hmm. And, and so I was like, but I was also like, I got to be careful because suppose I call it like Mr. Gaunt and other, you know, terrifying encounters. People <laughs> are going to be like, that didn't scare me. So <laughs> I thought, you know, I thought, don't set yourself up, say uneasy and, and uneasy will, that'll cover it, you know, like, like, because then people can just be like, yeah, it was uneasy. Or they can be like, to say the least it was uneasy. So that kind of set the the pattern. And, and in some cases, um, like Sephira and other betrayals, I had written this cluster of stories that were just really about betrayal. And I was like, man, these all have to go together. And that, like, that was like that was the title. And whereas Children of the Fang, I knew Children of the Fang was the title, but I I wasn't sure what the rest of it was gonna be. And most many of the stories, I'd say about like like two-thirds of the stories probably were written for like tribute anthologies to different writers. Uh -huh. And I was like, oh, okay. And and then even the ones that weren't explicitly written for tribute anthologies, it was like, um, uh, here's a story where, like there's, there's, there's a story in that where I was thinking about Peter Straub and I was like, I want to write like a little Peter Straub story. So I was like, okay, so this is kind of like a family tree that you're sketching out. You know, it's it, th this is all your kind of literary or some of your literary genealogy. It's not everybody, but it's some people. So I thought, oh, and children of the fang. Like, okay, that works that, you know, so, um, but yeah, I do, I do think about that a little bit about, about the, the, the subtitle or, or the full title is like this way to kind of like suggest to the reader, this is kind of what's holding all of these stories together. I think that's a great idea. Is that a lady or a guy in the, in the cover? It's, um, it's a lady. It's, okay. uh, um, it's, uh, I don't know who she is exactly, but, um, well, maybe I do. I don't, I don't, um, but yeah, no, I, I had a lot of fun. Um, you know, I couldn't really work with, um, with Caruso when he did the the covers for Safira and the Wide Carnivorous Sky and that because he's in Argentina it was difficult to communicate with him by phone. But Matthew Jaffe's in the U.S. He's in California, so we can chat, sort of hop on the phone and talk about what am I thinking about the collection, what's he's think, what's he thinking about it, and and then like it's it's the coolest thing, you know, that you you get this email that has all these attachments and it's like it's his ideas for for what he's going to do, and that's that's kind of mind-blowing as someone who wanted to be a, a comic book artist it's really cool to see someone else doing art you know inspired by your work yeah i bet and maybe i got my decade wrong but this kind of feels like it would have specifically children the thing feels like it's 
pulpy, maybe 40s, 50s. Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely has a kind of, you know, a, a somewhat pulpy um, feel to it. It's it's different. Caruso's stuff is, um, like, the cover of Safira is, um, you could say it's pulpy, but there's also kind of a feeling of, like, um, what's his name? Uh, Fra- Francesco Goya or something like that. There's a kind of sort of classical feel there. Jaffe's stuff has some of that, but but there's also a kind of pulp feel to it as well. And I know that over the years, the word pulp has changed. I know that it used to be kind of not thought of as super great. But for me, I love that stuff. It, it's sure it's, to me, pulp. I mean, like the two reptiles in the back, it's it's like sci-fi and horror meat. And it yeah, no, a... I, so much of my early reading, you know, it, it's funny, like even before I discovered King, um, it wasn't Lovecraft I was reading. It was Robert E. Howard. Mm. And, oh, okay. Um, how old were you? I was, oh, man. Uh, that was how I got through, like, fifth grade math class. Uh, my <laughs> sixth grade math class was hiding Conan behind the math book, you know? Yep. Um, and um, and so, you know, the Conan stories, and then he had a collection uh, of stories, or someone put together a collection of his stories. It was called Wolf's Head and Other Stories. And, um, and there were a bunch of stories in that that made a powerful impression on me. So... So yeah, the the kind of pulp, um, like like, like uh, Howard had much more of an impact on me than love. I read Lovecraft when I was much older, um, and I liked him, and I still like him, and I kind of respect him, and all this kind of stuff. But um, Howard got me like when I was really young, uh, I, I think, and so there there were ways that there were probably traces of his work stamped all over my work. If if um, um, if, if I wanted to look for them, if I wanted to, I've sometimes thought about that rereading some of his stuff and then like seeing if it jogs any, Oh yeah, that's where I got this from, or that's where I got that from, you know? That's great. Yeah. When I read, um, Lovecraft and I've said this in a few episodes, but I think it's worth repeating, uh, that in high school I felt too dumb to read. And basically what it all comes down to is my ADHD unaddressed until now, my early thirties. But, um, I didn't know that at the time. So I, I'm a late bloomer with all this reading, but mm-hmm. it's great to run a podcast like this because I get to read and then talk to guys like you, but sure, uh, sure. Lovecraft. I write them in my, uh, let's see, probably early twenties. And I just had to, I, I personally love the guy uh, as a as a writer, as a person. I know what he's got in the past, and I, I mean, I still I still think that without him, you you can't have what we have today without him. So he's he's I'm a firm believer in knowing who came before you. Um, at least kept, at least have an idea about that stuff. But uh, I no, I think it. that it, it helps you to it it. You were mentioning Coco before, right? You will be a better writer because you read Coco. Yeah. Imagine, imagine if Peter Straub could have read Coco. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, 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 oh, how much better? My mind blew up. <laughs> right. Like, like, so imagine that Peter had read Coco. Like, what would he? What more could he have done? Right. So, um, so that's the thing, right? You know, is is that like the the stuff that came before you? Yeah, that it's it it allows you to do the next to take the next step. It allows you to do the the next thing. It's kind of like a parent. It says, hey, look, this is what I learned at your age or before, and this is what the end result was. Now it's your turn. But um, I was going to say, with, with Lovecraft, I need a dictionary because I'm like, man, I feel like an idiot. I don't know most of these words that he's he's putting in these stories. Right. Uh, 
I, I want to talk briefly about the fishermen because we are hitting the two hour mark and we this is usually the longest longer episodes and uh, I just want to cover the fishermen. Sure, sure. Wrap up. Um, for me, I, I know uh, you already. I think you read the review that I wrote, but it's just I loved it. It's an instant classic, and I got to know at the very least if I were to ask one question, it would be. How much prep did you do before writing this? Because it seems very well thought out. Oh, well, you know, it, it took me 12 years. Uh, okay. <laughs> and and the the it, it starts actually, it, it starts with my wife pregnant with our, our, our younger son. And um, I was, um, and I actually have to back up before that even. Um, uh, I, I apologize to anyone who's heard this story before. Um, when I published my first story on Skua Island, I, yeah, I wanted to publish another story, right? But I was also afraid, like, I didn't feel like I had a lot of ideas at that point. And I was afraid, like, oh, my God, I'm going to use up all my ideas. <laughs> so I thought, okay, if I can write, like, basically and publish a story a year, um, like, I think I can manage that. And so by the time, just before on Skua Island um, uh, came out, but before it was published, um, I had uh, I had written Mr. Gaunt and I had uh, I had sent that out and I'd had that accepted, and then just before Mr. Gaunt came out, um, I wrote tutorial and had that accepted. So I was on this kind of trend, and then and so then um, my wife found out she was pregnant, and I was like, oh man, I got to get the fourth story written um, because um, there's a baby coming, and I don't know when I'm going to be able to get that fourth story done. So I started to write the Fisherman or what would become the Fisherman, thinking it would be just a story. And um, it grew and it grew and it grew. And I, I, I got to the, um, man, I'm trying to think. I, I, I probably, yeah, I probably got to the end of the first part. And I was like, man, this is a novel. But I was like, don't say novel, you know. And uh, so I put it aside because I wanted to write this other story. And then that story became my first novel. Became like I, So obviously I was just in the, at the point where I needed to write a novel. So I wrote House of Windows. And then I wrote some other, some more of the fishermen. And then over the years, I kind of came back to it for for a long time. I was stalled out um, um, about halfway through it, probably, where the, there's a scene where the our intrepid in in the past, where where this sort of group of men goes to confront the fishermen, goes to confront this uh, this this sorceress character. And I was just stuck. I didn't know what happened. And, um, and, and I thought, well, I'll do something kind of oblique and, and, you know, cryptic, but I was like, that's not right either, you know? And then, um, um, Jeff Ford, uh, gave at this point, Laird, uh, Laird was writing the, the croning and Jeff gave him some advice. Jeff was like, look, this is your first novel and your, your impulse is going to be to, um, uh to play it safe because it's your first novel he was like fight that impulse you know right. don't be afraid to go nuts and so although the although the fisherman wasn't my first novel i still was like you know what i gotta take jeff's advice and so i just went nuts with it um but it took me um yeah from from like like on and off not it wasn't like every single minute i was i was uh i was writing but it took me about 12 years all all told um and it's still, you know, we were rejected by every publisher. Um, 
all the mainstream publishers uh, that my agent sent the book to. That's they insane. were like, no, no, no. They were like, it's the, the literary ones were like, there's too much genre stuff. And the genre ones were like, it's too literary. And there was one editor who was like, I don't like fishing, so I'm not going to accept this. And, oh, you know, my God. Um, we had one editor who who actually was really close, who actually did want to do it. And uh, his higher ups were like, no, we're not interested. Um so, I mean, for what that's worth to anybody, like, you know, like I, I, it's tough when you get rejected, right? Like, um, you, you sometimes you think, is it, you know, like, I thought I wrote a good book. Is that, you know, um, sometimes books just don't, like, it takes a while for them to find their spot. The same thing with stories, you know, like, like sometimes you, you're, sometimes what you need to do is, is rather than like rewriting and rewriting, like you got it to a point where you sent it out and unless somebody can give you really specific feedback, and say, look, you need to fix X, Y, or Z, you know, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a problem. But let's say you've written it, you've got it to where it needs to be, you send it out, and it's maybe, you know, it's making the rounds. Rather than, like, worrying about it and rewriting it every time you get it back, move on to the next thing. Um, and then move on to the thing after that, you know, like, like keep, um, rather than obsessing over the one book that you're going to, or, or story that you're going to write and rewrite over and over again, and which may never find a home, you know, like, like, like sometimes that happens yeah. too, that you just have to kind of let it go. Yeah, like I told you, man, I wrote 10 novels and I mean, I, for me, the first few years were specifically, these are practices and I'm not yeah. saying trunk stories. It could be great if I go back. I don't know. But my whole point was, you got to practice and you got to, it's very rare where me and Keith Lane still were talking about this actually. So this will be coming out the week after his episode. Uh, but um, we, we said it's very, basically very rare for you to write that first novel and it's uh, to kill a mockingbird. Like that's right. That's right. so rare. And that's, and that would be really difficult, you right. know, like, like to, to write, like, like, the, like when I wrote on Skua Island and I published it, it got um, really nice reviews. It got nominated for the International Horror Guild Award, just the story. And it didn't win. And I was a little disappointed, but I was also, in retrospect, kind of grateful because I was like, man, that would have felt like, well, what do I do now? Like <laughs> I, got, I got a story published right. in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. I got good reviews. I won an award. Do I need to do Like, I'm done. It, it would be really hard <laughs> to, you know, to get past that. And so sometimes, like... Like, um, I actually had a student many years ago. He was an older guy, returning student, and he had done a business career and all this kind of stuff. And he, he talked about how he got this business award, and it was like this sort of as good as you could get in his particular profession. But he said that the guy who gave it to him leaned in and said, okay, what's next? Right. Um, and he said at the time, he was like, come on, let me just enjoy this. But he said it was kind of a saving thing that the guy said to him because rather than just focusing on here's it like being paralyzed by that, that moment and that success, he, he was like, like the guy was telling him there's more, this is not the end, you know? And, and so, yeah. So sometimes success can be, can be a tricky thing too. Glad that you kept at it. Uh, you know what, just to like, and I'm not kissing your ass when I say this, but there's only one book and I'll, I'll, tell you i'll make it number five but if i had to pick five and i was writing this while you were just talking if you if i had to pick uh top five horror novels ever that i've read uh, i'm going with richard matheson's i'm legend ray bradbury's and fair to say that this might not be horror but i don't give a shit uh 
I love books, so seeing them burned is hard for me. <laughs> Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, Arnold Kelly's Fair, your your book, The Fisherman, and Thomas Harris's, and this is the one where I might substitute one of his other books, uh, Red Dragon or The Silence of the Lambs. So I'm just Thank making you. a yeah, I'm just making a point. My opinion, it's it's very much so top shelf quality, and um, it for all the reasons that I wrote about in my review, which was basically to to summarize it, it's it feels like a telling of a classic. I said classic, contemporary classic, and that's an oxymoron, but just meaning that you wrote it in the modern time, but it feels like something you were taught in school. And it always made me smile when I saw a little reference to um, Herman Melville. And uh, I, I'm like, this guy definitely likes Moby Dick at the very least. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it, was, <laughs> it started off, I, I mean, one of the other things I did with my early stories was I, I thought about them as like, responding to stuff I was I had read like like to, to classic works of literature I had read and so yeah with this one I was like okay Moby Dick which is a book I really love although I totally get why people are like I hate this book you know I don't want to know this much about whales you know and so um so yeah so so it, it definitely was was in and it, you know is in dialogue and in to a certain extent with Moby Dick but it's more like it's not like you know like when King does Salem's Lot he does a kind of one-to-one between what's happening in Dracula and what's happening in Salem's Lot. What I wanted to do was take Moby Dick and sort of like, like, like take the jigsaw puzzle and sort of shake it apart, you know, like, 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 and then just sort of see what falls out. And, and so the correspondence is not always in, in that same linear way uh, that, that King does say, it's just that there were echoes sort of cutting back and forth between the two books. Right. And another really cool thing um, that I love in it is it, it totally, it, I think, let's see, I'm just thinking of the writers I've read this year in the books, and it's all mixed new and old and classics, but you're one of the closest, if not the closest writer to Straub that I've read, meaning specifically that it's definitely literature, um, but there's also, when you write horror in it, it's just like, oh my god, this is either unnerving with your tadpoles. <laughs> that scene, man, it's so creepy. It's you know a good example would be in it, Stephen King's it in the uh, when they're adults, the kids are adults, the loser clubs in the Chinese restaurant, and I think it was Richie that looked at the uh, what was it those uh, cookies so. Oh yeah, fortune, yeah, 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 yeah. Fortune yeah. cooking. It's Everything eye- is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like an eyeball or whatever. Like it's just, it's so simple, but yet, oh, it's so unnerving. Yeah. And yeah, then yeah. you have moments of pure brutality, and it's not like over the line in the sense where it's unnecessary. All of it makes sense, but that—that's why I love that book. And I hope some people that haven't read it yet, listen to this, um, buys it in and reads it too. Um, well, thank you. Thank absolutely. Absolutely. Is there anything for the for your two books that you want to cover before we start wrapping up? No, no. That's we've we've said that we've done a great job. I appreciate it. It's it's. Um, I'm happy that 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 Mr. Gaunt's coming out. I I feel you know, um, Lyle Cohen especially the 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 novella in it. Like, um, it, it was at the time. 
it's funny it has it has something in common with my first novel with house of windows and that they're both kind of about unlikable characters mm. and i've i've sort of thought to myself you know that these are they probably from a sort of strategic standpoint were not great things to publish as a new writer um because people want like sympathetic characters if they don't know you as a writer because they right. don't trust you know like, <laughs> like what is this you who know? are you and mr so, langan <laughs> right where is it like like now i can i could write a story with it with an unsympathetic character and people will give me the benefit of the doubt they'll be like oh okay let's see what he does whereas at the time lao cohen is about this guy who's who's a sculptor and he's kind of like a, a he just is a failure in a lot of ways and i was bouncing that in in the same way the fisherman bounces off moby dick this was bouncing off of a, a sh very short novel by saul bellow called uh, seize the day which is about a guy who's also a kind of a loser and and that was i was like let's let's do that but people you know people don't want to read about losers you know and and i was really I still am really proud of of what it did, but I, I think people were just like, I don't know. And and so I'm kind of hopeful that that now people will be like, all right, well let me let me take a look at this. Let me let me see what the guy was was doing. So I think they yeah, will. I'm happy. I'm happy to have uh, happy to have the the book back uh, back in print. Yeah, and um, really grateful. And I'll speak for Brandon here. Really grateful that you allowed us to have an uh, arc on that. So thank you for that. No, you're um, welcome. You're welcome. For the fisherman, there's one thing that sticks in my mind when Brandon and I were talking about it. We talk like every day about literally almost every single day about books, especially with the upcoming guests. And uh, for the fisherman, because um, we both read that with uh, Mr. Gaunt pretty much back to back. And um, we, when we were talking about the fisherman, one thing that Brandon thought that was just absolutely, uh, what's the word? not mesmerizing it, it was pure horror was something so subtle yet not really which was and if this is too spoilery let me know and i'll cut it um when he returns to fishing and he won't go in the he'll only go in the shallow end and i'll keep it at that but he's like there's something about that he's like that, that that's just pure terrifying and i gotta agree that that's that was brilliant thank you Thank you. Yeah, well, it was just I figured, you know, I, I, you, we all have our compulsions. We all have our things that we, we feel like, oh, I need to get back to that. But how do you do that after you've had these horrifying experiences? <laughs> right. You know, it's, yeah. it's, and it's like, well, you know, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll stay in the kiddie pool or the kiddie end of the pool, you know? Um, how, how did we all go back to the beach after we watched Jaws? <laughs> oh, I still get it. My wife busts my chops all the time. And uh, the Cape Cod is like a second. Uh, hometown for us, and uh, I'm like, if the, the areas of the cave we go to, they're on Shark Week. That's why I'm scared of great right, right, it's, right. it's Jaws. It's it's absolutely Jaws. But uh, I before we go with the wrap up questions, I want to ask one thing. Do you know if you'll be at Merrimack uh, Book Fest this year? I am planning on it. Um, yes. It's, it's so it it just is really going to depend on the sort of COVID situation, right? How things develop. So. Um, Please, if you haven't gotten your vaccine, please get it, get it for yourself, get it for your, if not for yourself, get it for your family, get it, you know, and mask up and, um, um, yeah, be safe because it would be lovely. It'd be great to see everybody again, um, for, for, we, we did it virtually last year. Um, it would be great to be able to do it in person this, this year. So let's, let's all try to make that happen. Absolutely. Um, 
Let's jump into the first one, which is what are you reading currently? Um, I'm reading a bunch of stuff right now. Um, um, a bunch of a bunch of different arcs. I, I have an arc of Josh Mallerman's forthcoming book, uh, Ghoul in the Cape, uh, which is like this big, gigantic kind of 80s style horror novel where... Um, yeah, I, I, it, there were two characters on this cross-country mission to, and and they're trying to prevent the end of everything. Um, and it's uh, it's really wild, and it's it's really in some ways. It's, I think it might actually be the best written thing that that uh, that Josh has uh, has done. Wow, and that's um, saying something. Yeah, yeah, it's really lyrical and and really um, he's taking his time. There's no there's no uh, no rush or or, or whatever. Um, he's he's really just kind of letting the world like like fill out. Um, so yeah, that, uh, that one I'm, I'm trying to get done as, as, uh, as soon as I can, so I can maybe send a blurb into earthling press. Um, and, um, uh, I'm reading an old novel by VS Naipaul called a house for Mr. Biswas, which is a the kind of realist novel that Naipaul wrote about his dad, uh, growing up in Trinidad in the, in the early, early part of the 20th century. Um, and, um, uh, he's a great prose writer, and I, I try to stay in touch with like with with um, great prose writers. Um, and um, geez, uh, I teach high school, so there's there's stuff I'm I'm looking at for uh, for that. But um, uh, and I've I've started Stephen Graham Jones's uh, My Heart Is a Chainsaw, um, so that uh, I, I may try to just push through that this weekend and just and just get that one done. Well, man, that all that sounds incredible. You know what? Um, Brennan and I were lucky enough to talk to Paul, and we're waiting on that Mallory book too. I can't, I cannot wait. Like I, I'm a slow reader, especially compared to him. I don't know how he reads so damn quickly. It's, mm-hmm. it's like before about a year ago, it'd be like, all right, at least I got the writing on top. But uh, like, I can write faster than Brennan. Don't got that anymore either. <laughs> You know, it's it's uh, Brian cheats. Uh, I've decided he's Brian now. He cheats. Uh, he reads the uh, Cliff's Notes versions. The the you know he just kind of skims. He's just like ah, scary stuff happens. And because you're you're good and decent, you take him at his word. But he's lying. He's lying like like a rug, like you know a what? cheap rug. I'll say it on air. How about you? Fuck him. He's fired. Yeah, I'm. Gonna, I'm gonna. <laughs> and. <laughs> John Lane is now the official co-host of Dead Headspace. Oh, there you go. Whether he wants to or not. What? Who said that? Um, I am currently reading. Well, you know, I just finished. Um, let me pull it up. I want to pull up my cheat sheet, which is my uh, Goodreads, my Goodreads app. Uh, I just finished, and I don't want to mispronounce her name. Uh, Katriana's. Um, last house on Neela Street. Oh and yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, I'm really. I have. I don't have it yet, but I'm. I'm really looking forward to it. I talked to her tomorrow, but for chronologically, uh, uh, when this episode, when her episode releases, it'll be a a week after yours. Yeah, yeah. Me and Brian talked about that. He can't make it for that either. But um, because well, well, come on, Brian, what are you doing? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's just this weekend. Some stuff came up, but. <sighs> He said, good luck trying to not spoil that book when you talk. And if you read it, you'll get it. Uh, it's like talk about Mr. Gaunt and the monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it's just I'm gonna have to think on it. What the yeah. what the heck do I say about this and that? Because it's really, I mean, it, it's certainly worth that Stephen King blurb. Um, it's it's it. I can say that's a, it's a crime, and it does something that I've seen prior. And it's really, I mean, that's not an insult. Like what's new? Um, not much, but it's just so well written. It's so well executed. And it has all these twists and turns, and and even if you see some of them coming, it's just it's one of those things where it's so fun of a ride, and it's <laughs> quite frankly, the subject matter is a little fucked up. But I mean, that's why we read horror for yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for some reasons. Um, another book that I'm going to be diving into soon is Don Winslow's City mm. on Fire. Um, yeah, yeah. Man, talk 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 about top notch crime writers. Don is fantastic really can't add anything else to that and then there's one more uh that i'm gonna dive into in a couple days someone who we're gonna be talking with i believe it's next week eric larocca um he has a collection that just came out as a uh, was it two days ago from this recording day i think it was two or one or two days ago it's his first collection it's called the and talk about a guy that comes up with awesome titles he yeah, comes yeah. up Really neat ones. The strange thing we become in other dark tales. That is out through um, Off Limits Press, uh, a publisher who puts out a lot of great books. But um, uh, you know what? I, I just I'm so happy to be alive at this point in time. Yeah, no, there's good stuff. There's a lot of good stuff being done. And, and speaking of Merrimack, going back to that, I mean, there's so many people that write incredible stories. You can't keep up with them. Like Hollywood would not if they started to actually invest the time I think they should in um, the independent market or just books in general uh, that aren't Stephen King or like Anne Rice. Um, they want to keep up either. It's it's impossible because when when we try to get all the people that we think are newer or whatever, there's like 12 more the next minute. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, listeners. If you want to check out our website where we have a shop, it is deadheadspace.com. All you got to do is go to the shop tab, check it out. If you're into that, if not, well, then ignore this. Uh, where can people follow you, Mr. Langan? Um, I spend way too much time on, you know, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. <laughs> um, I do have a, a blog um uh, if you look up Mr. Gaunt, uh, uh, the website for John Lang, and you'll find it there. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's I, I in, instead of doing all the writing I should be doing, I suppose I'm I'm just like oh, let me post another picture of my little dog. So, well, I mean that that all sounds lovely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts, sir? Uh, no, thank you for talking. I'm, I'm so grateful to, I'm always grateful to, to, and still kind of stunned in, in a way, you know, it's sort of funny, you know, like you think to yourself, um, uh, we're talking about Stephen King and, and what it must be like to be at that level of fame and, and so on. And I guess I'm not because, you know, I, I still like to talk to people. I'm still amazed that people want to talk to me. I'm, I'm just like, you know, seriously, you know, it's funny because there, there are a few other John Langans out there. There's a, there's another John Langan who writes composition textbooks. Um, and I always think, are you sure you don't mean that John Langan? Because, it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> composition textbooks sound like a lot of fun. So, yeah. So um, uh, um, thank you for the for the chance to just kind of babble on and talk about the Lord of the Rings and stuff, you know. And, and um, 
Yeah, and, and um, hang in there, everybody. You know, it's 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 still a tough time. Uh, maybe it's always a tough time, but it feels like it's still a, the real a really tough time right now. So, just hang in there. We're we're you know do the best you can. Um, take care of yourself and uh, read read good books. Yeah, that's great advice. And you know what? That's funny because when I see people say that they're bored, adults in particular, I'm just thinking. Get into reading, man. That's, yeah. You can read anything. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, I just, my final thoughts are, is we're really glad that we could have you on. And even if Brendan was here for this one, seriously, we want you back. Um, you know, it would be fun because we talked to, I talked to Paul about having him on for season three. So he's going to be doing that. Victor, uh, we're in the very early stages of ha- talking with him about maybe this year or next year, but we'll have him on. And Laird, we'd want him back, but I would love to have you guys, just a group, whoever, you and Paul and whomever else, just come on and talk. So maybe we can do that for next year. Be fun. Um, next episode, everybody, is episode 114 with Katriana Ward. Uh, we're going to be talking about that book I mentioned, uh, Last House on Needless Street. I'm not sure what else we're going to be talking about. I haven't recorded it yet, so... Stay tuned for that. And as always, you have many choices in podcasts. Thank you for listening to us for the last two almost and a half hours. And have a good one. You are now leaving Deadhead Space.